welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections may come up when you take a look at a director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Um, a journey that in this episode takes us to Iran and beyond of the work of Ashkar Farhadi. Welcome, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And for this exploration, we are joined by a uh, special guest star. You may have heard him on the John Ford cast and the Terrence Malick cast. And we're glad that Peter Richards, one of our fellow members of the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup Group, is here to join us for yet another episode. Welcome, Pete. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back. And now that I've risen to guest star level, I feel like I'm truly accomplished. <laughs> Thank you. This 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 is already a great day for me. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to ask, what got you to say, I've got to join in on on some taking a uh, discussion on Ferrati? I think maybe more than any other director I've had to wrestle with, mainly because I think it's fair to characterize his films as melodramas. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all. My own relationship with melodrama is one I'm constantly struggling with. Sometimes I can be very easily put off by it. Yet at the same time, I will typically list uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia as my favorite film, which is (laughs) very obviously a melodrama. So... Farhadi for me is someone who's constantly challenged my own perceptions of what films do and how he approaches stories. So um, I really welcome the chance to dig this, dig into this with you guys. Yeah, melodrama is kind of a, a tricky term because it does carry some baggage. But for me, it's kind of like uh, when some people call films manipulative. It's only manipulative if you notice it. <laughs> All films, to an extent, are but the really good ones hide it and you don't realize that's what they're doing. And I think that's part of the greatness of, of Farhadi is he combines these intense dramatic moments with realism that just say, this is the truth and an authenticity of, about them. And so because it sets that he sets up, this wonderful base, we're able to follow him on even the most extreme tangents he wants to go on. I agree. I, I think manipulation is really the key word for me. Uh, as I entered this, the rewatches of most of these films, I really kept, tried to keep in mind how big uh, is Farhadi going dramatically and why is he doing it? And does it cross the line to manipulation for me? And that's really how the approach I took to each of these films. That's a really good lens to look at this, Peter. I, too, am really excited to be covering this director who is the most successful director out of Iran. His films are more profitable than any others in Iran. And he has become, for a lot of modern moviegoers, the filmmaker from that country. But I think it's important to put him in context and talk about the incredibly rich tradition of Iranian film. And there's 
a number of of acclaimed directors and films that I know that we would uh, definitely encourage you to check out if you're not already familiar with Iranian cinema. So the context of films in Iran is very tied to the recent political history of Iran, which is back in 1953, there was a coup that was backed by America and Western nations uh, that installed the Shah of Iran. And that brought in a period of Western influence, what many more religious people in Iran considered decadence. And films reflected that. So you had a very commercial, Western-influenced cinema with a lot of the excess uh, associated with that. Still in that period, there were some incredibly acclaimed films that became known as the Iranian New Wave. And unlike a lot of other countries who have a new wave, like in, in the United States, it was in, in the 70s, and in uh, France, it was in the, in the 60s, the Iranian new wave kind of seems to keep going and going. So we have a, a first wave, a second wave, maybe a third wave. But that first wave is the, are the films that were before the revolution. The Iranian revolution occurred in 1979 and deposed the Shah. The Ayatollah Khomeini came in and turned Iran into a Islamic Republic, into a place where there was very strict religious rule. That's been obviously controversial in a world politics way, but we're going to focus on how that's affected the film industry. And the first thing that happened was the film industry was almost completely destroyed. During the revolution, people started burning movie theaters. And there was a thought that because of the decadence that uh, the Shah's era of films had, had brought forward, that films just needed to be banned and gotten rid of and... Right then and there, the industry could have died altogether, except the Ayatollah saw a film called The Cow, which is one of the seminal films of the first wave. Now, unlike much of the excess of the period, The Cow is a neorealistic film about a man who's who's lost his cow and that he was so attached to that he starts to actually become like the cow. It's a very remarkable film. And the director, whose name I apologize, I will most likely mispronounce is we might end up mispronouncing a number of names throughout this podcast, absolutely no disrespect intended, especially because the director of the cow is one of the greats of Iran, a man named uh, Darush Merjoui. He continued to make wonderful films uh, all the way through uh, the 90s when he made one of my favorite Iranian films and I think one that was very influential on uh, Farhadi called Leela. It stars the same actress who is the lead in A Separation, which we will be talking about soon. It's about a married woman who cannot get pregnant and encourages her husband to take 
a second wife. It's done with the depth and realism that Farhadi will end up embracing. There's also another great film he did called The Pear Tree. But back to the point of the cow, as that became kind of a seminal touchstone in Iranian film because it saved the industry. Then a number of really acclaimed directors started coming out post-revolution. They were under very severe restrictions because even though the government was now going to allow films to be made, they were going to censor it to ensure that all films were consistent with Islamic law. So every woman on screen needs to wear a hijab. There would be no kissing, very limited touching between men and women, and certainly nothing that would be uh, critical of Islam or of the Iranian government. But still, uh, these directors come through to make wonderful artistic statements. Uh, Moshan Makmelbaf, who made a wonderful open-ended film called A Moment of Innocence and an absolutely beautiful movie called Gabet. Most famously is Abbas Kiarostami, who we could end up doing an episode on as well. His filmography is so rich. Uh, he's well known for films like Close Up and A Taste of Cherry. And he even has some amazing work that was filmed outside of Iran. And that's actually one of the slight spoiler alert for this podcast is that we're at, one of the things we're going to look at is what happens when Iranian filmmakers, once they leave the confines of such a repressive environment, what, what are the films that results? Like I will say in Karastami's case, uh, one of my favorite films is a film that he did went after he left Iran called Certified Copy, which is phenomenal. A, a miraculous combination of Before Sunrise and Last Year at Marianbad in a way that enhances the values of each work into the other. It's fantastic. Juliette Binoche gives a great performance in that, and uh, he ended up making a film in Japan as well. More troublesome, though, is the career of Jafar Panahi, who ended up running afoul of the Iranian authorities in his filmmaking to the extent that he was put under house arrest, which you would think would have ended his career. But somehow he used that limitation to make underground films like this is not a film and closed curtain but one of his films i think sums up what became part of the second wave aesthetic of iranian films in in that because they were limited in subject matter they ended up taking on a, a few themes repeatedly that you'll see in a lot of iranian films one is a focus on children and children's stories, but not done in movies that are geared just towards children, but ones that uh, bring you into their world and, and, and see them watching and observing the adult world. And then also a, a, a wonderful kind of breaking of the fourth wall 
in films about filmmaking that that blur the lines between documentary and fictional films. Uh, Kiarostami is famous for these kind of movies. I'm really glad that you point out how not just the creativity involved in doing ways of causing us to reevaluate our perspectives in even a meta level in these films, but specifically these films that we're going to talk about have these amazing qualities. But when you consider the repressive limitations upon which these films were created, I feel it needs to be emphasized just the degree of difficulty to Mm -hmm. be able to tell stories on a lot of these subjects uh, in this, in this location and to, on top of all that, have, in, in Ferrati's case, come across as so effortless, is a miraculous to behold, I feel. And every filmmaker must consider the possibility that what they're doing could lead to their arrest and taking away of everything they have. Yeah. And I, I think a, a great example for that, I mean, the very first Iranian film I ever saw was Kurosami's A Taste of Cherry, which... Um, Again, this will be a, a spoiler, but ends with a effect where you cut to the uh, showing the film being made, and I because mainly because it concerns suicide, I believe, mm-hmm. and that is such an uh, interesting way to approach for essentially forbidden subject matter in uh, Iranian culture, and that is an, a, another example of an obstacle creating great art, and I think Iranian film in general is maybe the a prime example of that just in world cinema today. Um, just as an aside, uh, as I mentioned, a taste of cherry is the first Iranian film I ever saw. This was back in the nineties when there were still video stores. And I asked the clerk, uh, can I rent a taste of cherry? And he proceeded to point me to the beaded curtain in the back of, of the room. Of course. And I, I said, no, I think that's a different one, different taste of cherry than I'm looking for, but thank you. And that leads to one other thing that I feel we need to point out uh, for you guys listening in is that we're going to go in depth about the films of Ashka Ferrati, and we're going to try to be careful about as much as we can in terms of not letting in on it every specific detail so that you can go and uh, experience these things for yourselves. But I feel that right now is a good point to give a general warning that the best way to experience this guy's films is to, in fact, take a look at them knowing as little as possible upon what happens on, uh, upon them. And we're going to give you a heads up when this happens, but for Farhadi in particular his endings make you rethink everything that came before. So in order to have a discussion about the films, we are going to have to go into some of those endings. Yes. Very few filmmakers have stuck the landing in a way that makes you turn the film upside down and let you look at it in whole new ways in as many times as Ferrati has. Farhadi's career as a director begins in the early 2000s, but even prior to that, he had a career as a writer and has written for the theater and screenplays uh, for films made by other directors. But his debut was 
Dancing in the Dust, released in 2003. Hey little sister, who's your superman? Hey little sister, who's the one you want? Hey little sister, shotgun. It's a nice day to start again. It's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Nazar thought he had found wedded bliss, but when it's revealed that his wife's mother is a prostitute, not only must his marriage end, but he ends up in debt and finds himself on the run in the desert, with only a strange old man as a companion. People who have heard of Ashgar Farhadi's films and know of his dramas might be pretty surprised when they... Uh, I know I was when I saw his first movie and realized that he might have started off by making a bit of a teen comedy coming-of-age tale. <laughs> Our main character is hapless and clueless and quickly finds himself in trouble in a way that I found uh, comic at a great many at a great many points. Yeah, this was a real surprise for me as well. Um, if you, it, I had seen all his um, or most of his films prior to seeing this, and if that had been reversed, I never would have predicted the career Farhadi has based off of this film. Um, what's curious about it and makes it an outlier is that its strengths are really its visuals, I think, and its writing is fairly labored. Um, which I, I think will be almost the exact opposite later uh, in, in his films. Not to say that his visuals are labored. That's perhaps too strong, but he's probably strongest as a writer. There, I just want to jump in and say, for uh, just in terms of the, with the premise we described, it's almost like you compressed the, the, all the things that befall the main character from After Hours in a span <laughs> of 10 minutes. He, like, or, or if you play a country song at double the speed, he really has his life get turned upside down in very short order. After this film, there's going to be quite a consistency in how Farhadi approaches his films and what he's trying to do, the issues he's trying to dig deep into. And I found that pretty absent in this film. And, and my take on it is that this is him trying to figure out how to make a film because you've got a lot of really nice look at me ma visuals going on that shows that he's a director of skill but ever like you said everything we've come to expect from a Farhadi film is kind of off in this one including his use of actors because I've got to tell you, for any qualities this might have, uh, the young actor playing the lead is atrocious. He has <laughs> one loud voice that he says every single line in the same tone that never varies. And it's basically like you're watching Shaggy from the Scooby-Doo <laughs> cartoon. So the fellow playing the old man uh, is convincing. Uh, 
everything else is kind is kind of working, but but wow, this kid is just undoing everyone else's good works. Yeah, and, and what's interesting too is that maybe the first 15, 20 minutes of this film is really later for Hadi films condensed into like an intro mm-hmm. because it concerns um, marriage, it concerns family matters, it concerns the concept of honor. And this film sort of goes through all those steps re- relatively quickly and then takes a huge ill-advised metaphor metaphorical detour into the desert for a good chunk of the film. And it's really like he, I, I think your look at me, Ma, uh, comment Brett is very apt because it's really like kind of this big idea that he's trying to convey but is really kind of beyond his grasp at this point in his career and from here he really kind of tones it down and will dig into uh, and really make whole movies out of the themes addressed in the first 20 minutes of this mm-hmm. film he's relies quite a bit on symbolism uh the starkness of the desert landscape and in particular how uh, one of the ways the main character tries to get m- money is to try uh, think about wrangling snakes, something that he is deathly afraid of, and something that the old man who uh, has what may be Iran's dirtiest van <laughs> seems to have a particular kind of proficiency at. I should say really quickly here, my, uh, my brother Andrew kind of... Uh, served as my informal cultural advisor to these films. Uh, he served in uh, Iraq and has much more insight into Middle Eastern culture than I do. And we'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next film. But one thing that was curious to me is snakes are a heavy image in this film, the key takeaway from the film, really. And I wasn't sure if they meant something different than the Quran versus the Bible, which would typically be deception, I guess, is one mm-hmm. way to say it. Temptation. Temptation, yeah, deception. Right. Um, and here, uh, Andy didn't think that meant anything different. It would be very similar, just broadly speaking. I did a little bit of research to see if there was any um, thing I could dig up, but I really didn't see anything. So I, I think it's an example of using kind of an obvious metaphor a lot and not really getting a whole lot, not getting a lot of mileage out of it um mileage in the van as you were right right. yes (laughs) and and just to double back on your point this van is is comical in a way it's we may be dealing with shaggy but this is much more murder van than mystery machine (laughs) i'll I'll say it like it's really just like if you you saw this van coming you would run the other way but it looks like i've never seen a van look like it was been sitting in a charcoal pit for multiple (laughs) decades yeah. So, and we should say, like, really, the way Farhadi marries kind of the two pieces of the film we're talking about, and I think we're going to go into spo- a bit of spoilers here, um, is he takes the family setup, the family issue setup of the first film to the desert. And from there, we have our central character who, even though he's divorced at this point, doesn't want to admit that his marriage has ended and he still has feelings for um, the woman he's left. Um, at this point, as you said, financial concerns re- lead him to be a snake wrangler, and he proceeds to be in a very uh, on-point metaphor land, be, mit- be bitten by a snake directly on his ring finger, which is then amputated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really just so heavy-handed at that point. Um, Ironic but- considering the hands of finger lighter, yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a lot of repetition in mm-hmm. all this because... We have a lot of snake wrangling 
before this incident happens. And then the old the old man is his own kind of specialness because he's basically just yelling and beating the kid and trying to get him to go away and making him uh, sleep in the desert and abusing him until he gets injured and then he's the one who ends up uh, having to care for him. While his actions differ once the kid gets bit, he we don't ever really get to know him. And it's not his story. We're trying to get to know the kid and dealing with the aftermath of his marriage and the idea of why is he motivated the way he is to the point where he's putting his own life at risk. The bit of backstory we get about the older gentleman is basically that he has, if, if I understand the story correctly, um, and we should say too that we had some subtitle issues with the version we saw, so we're doing our best to kind of pull different story strands from this, right. but mm-hmm. it, it would appear that the old man has been uh, released from prison after he has murdered uh, the person his spouse had an affair with. I believe that's right. what happened. Yes. And at this point, he's sort of exiled himself out to the desert to just live only among these snakes. And I think maybe what the film is going for is that this these are sort of the two paths in front of the kid. Like, he can become like this man and just be in exile, or he can try to um, honor his, his debt in a way and move forward. And I think what where the story goes is ultimately... The old man, I think, gives him money to pay his um, the portion of his divorce debt he owes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's he's trying to reconcile like a path, an honorable path forward for this young man. But it just it has this uncomfortable tying of the snake with marriage, and I'm not quite sure holds really well. It kind of feels like um, this is a Farhadi film without any women in it. It's very male. And I'm just not really sure how all these trends come together for me. I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it doesn't really work all that well. Right. There is a moment where when the ring is literally still on the amputated finger and needs to be removed at the hospital (laughs) where they have it spinning around like the top at the end of uh, Inception, it ends on a moment which I find really remarkable and potentially has some interesting thought to it because periodically uh, we see the older gentleman have a box, a, t- a dirty tin box upon which a picture of his wife is inside. And I think, and at the end of the film, by paying off his marriage debt, our main character uh, wishes his ex-wife well and walks away from the relationship. He's reached some resolution. And very soon after that moment, he finds that the remnants of the the older guy's van is lying around the road, and he sees a, the battery box, opens it, and finds that it's empty. The, so I think it's the concept of letting go, and the and the value of that, and how in a way that maybe the older gentleman was been sort of damned to stay on Earth, sort of like a living ghost in a way mm-hmm. until he's able to set things right. So uh, at least that's how I took it, which I, I think was a, is a really interesting I, uh, notion on this thing from his very first movie, but we will not 
be the last time he deals with that particular issue. And then, uh, to give the film some credit to one of the smaller touches I liked is it is very much about the difficulty of marriage in a lot of ways, or it has that at least on his mind early in the film. Yeah. According to my, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, Farhadi was married at age 18. Hmm. So he was obviously married at a young age. And I, I can't speak to the specifics of Iranian culture. I don't know how common or uncommon that is. But one of the nice touches early in the film is when they're, the young couple is picking out rings and they can only get um, a set that uh, they have a, a set that they can afford, which the ring doesn't fit our lead. Mm -hmm. So he has to tie string around it so that it, the ring, which is too big fits his finger. Yeah. And to me that, that question of like, not of being too young and not having grown into the maturity marriage requires, that's a nice touch a nice regularly touch. Yes. But that's really um, the exception rather than the rule in this film. There is a, like his, even in his first film, his idea, um, it, it is a, a particular pleasure that I have to see that he he's really caring about even the smallest details. That very piece of string is used later in the movie where he's sort of angrily throwing a piece of string off into the uh, off into the distance. Um, and in that scene where they're picking out the rings, there is a one uh, a shot that is very clearly a um, uh, look at me type shot. Where they're where they point out which rings they like, and they're pointing right at us in the camera, but they have a pane of glass. So as they push their fingers, their fingers make an impression and flatten, showing perhaps the pressure on the marriage, and perhaps the and perhaps the barriers. And uh, this uh, focus on marriage is what connects this film to the rest of Farhadi's filmography because. Every one of these films are in some way or another going to be about marriage. And I, I guess I wish this one was, was more so because it, it starts out in that mode and then it's uh, moving on to the desert uh, has us lose this for quite a while. But I mean, it's an interesting question it poses, especially in the cultural context is it, the the young man is truly in love and uh, adores his wife, but the fact that her mother uh, was a prostitute uh, creates these pressures from his family, from everyone he knows, to say that no, this this is unacceptable. You cannot be married to this woman, no matter how you feel. Mm -hmm. The sense of stakes and responsibilities, guilts, and awareness of the consequences of your actions and the obstacles you need to try to overcome to deal with them ha makes it start here. And Ferrati, I feel, shows a very particular talent in, in, highlighting, those, in highlighting those aspects. Whether, whether a debt gets paid is given as much tension as whether a person can live or die off a snake bite, even in this film. Going forward, I think we'll get a more holistic view of each party uh, in, in a relationship or a marriage. Here, he might be writing more what he knows or what he feels. Later, we'll get a sense of maybe what the institution means in a bigger way. Mm -hmm. One quick tangent on this. This is the one Ashgar Ferrati movie that I found a laugh riot. The only copy of the film that 
I was able to see was one that had a um, the subtitles had started to get messed up at, at a little over the two thirds of the waypoint, and they were out of sync. But as these subtitles were out of sync, it, the they were eventually playing in advance of the action. And there's a moment where our main character is in the desert and he starts to try handling some snakes and he's not saying anything, but suddenly the word ouch appears on the subtitle track leading to the first occasion I've ever seen of a subtitle being its own spoiler. So as he is handling the snake and all the while I'm wondering, okay, he's not saying ouch here. Okay. The snake got a little close to his leg and not doing ouch there. And then I found out when that happened, when he lets off a minute-long blood-curdling scream. <laughs> so I go, oh, that's probably where that subtitle is, al- is aligned with. <laughs> the sense of anticipation reminded me of, of all things, Hot Tub Time Machine, where they know Crispin Glover's character is going to have his arm cut off. And it's just a matter of us eagerly waiting to see something disastrous happen. <laughs> but... To your guys' point on Ashkar Farhadi's themes, specifically on marriage, both these aspects get manifest in a much greater manner in his next film, The Beautiful City, released in 2004. In this film, uh, Akbar is on death row for a murder he committed as a teen, but his execution can only be carried out once he turns 18, and there's a chance that it could be stayed if the relative of the person he killed can give his consent for leniency. And as this, as the fateful day is approaching, his friend who also served with him in this uh, prison environment uh, desperately seeks to save Akbar's life, only to encounter things getting considerably more complicated as he pursues this goal. I like to think of this as kind of the, the real first Farhadi movie, mm. and the way it deals with ethical issues is is just far and away more mature than it was in the first film. And it deals with some really core ones, mostly the idea of revenge, which will come up again in an even more mature way in a future film. But but here it, it's so interesting to see the um, father of the victim who have the life of the man who killed his daughter in his hands – and that it's not an easy decision because as the as the cleric who he consults with makes clear in the islamic tradition uh, revenge is not the proper way to go and the holy thing for him to do would be to show mercy but that's easier said than done when when you've lost a loved one and so we see this struggle going on 
uh, and also being complicated by financial interests and more and more pressures between the, the young man trying to convince him and his own wife. It's, it's a fascinating journey. It really is a complex consideration of humanity and faith. And really, is, I think Farhadi is asking the question, is Islamic faith one that allows for revenge or is it one that allows for forgiveness? And is, are people able to do that as well? The, the wronged, uh, the father of the murdered um, victim here is also a doctor. So you have the contrast of someone seeking revenge who is ostensibly a healer, someone who should be bringing people back to health here being steadfastly devoted to taking the life of someone else because he, his own anger and hurt won't let him do anything else. And Farhadi really digs in, at least um, for most of this film, into those issues. And it really is thoughtful. And here, as, as I mentioned, we're really getting multiple characters' points of view rather than just one person's story as we got in Dancing in the Dust. I agree. This is really the early Farhadi film I was expecting. And I think it's, for most of its running time, um, well, wor well worth your investment and a deep consideration. Um, there's a late uh, plot twist or plot development that I'm not entirely on board with, but maybe we can get to that in a bit. One of the things that the film's not as particularly strong as some of his later efforts is with this lead, who to me seems uh, both supernaturally dedicated to uh, helping out this guy who he very well have known for like one or two years, but he goes all out to a, a staggering level to try and make sure he avoids getting uh, executed for a crime that he did, in fact, commit. <laughs> so uh, it, it, that's a way that I did not find, con that I did not find convincing <laughs> um, as, to, as to his general motivation for why he would do that. And it doesn't help that he's established as being an incredibly thoughtless character. Uh, for example, maybe when uh, a kid turns 18 he's then sent to an adult prison to be executed in that case maybe giving him a surprise 18th birthday is very much one of the most awkwardly <laughs> thoughtless ideas i've ever seen <laughs> well, well let, let's maybe we can dig into that a little bit because I, I think for me like the film is very economical in setting up the central friendship with drives our main character in his quest to essentially save his friend from execution but you really only, the film is interesting because the character who's going to be executed is really only seen in the first five or so minutes of the film. Mm -hmm. And they're in the titular beautiful city, which is the name of the youth ju juvenile detention center or rehabilitation center. Um, and here we have our, our lead character throwing, uh, plays a prank on his friend and then it leads into a, a birthday party, which I think demonstrates this desire on the part of our lead to be close with this person. And it really is, it, it is shorthand, but it, it, at least from his perspective drives how much he cares about this person. He may not be mature enough to understand everything this person's going through, but there is genuine feeling for that character. We've been denied a lot of backstory and 
we have to uh, assume about the friendship that developed, I believe, in the, the two years the, the two were in prison together. So I, I think, Al, you, you make a good point in, in that because we know what's coming up from Farhadi, we expect a certain level of magnificence in the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And even though Beautiful City moves in that direction, it, it still has some of the hallmarks of an early film. It, 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 the ambition is there and the themes are there, but like you say, he hasn't put in a stellar actor in the lead role. What he has done though, is put in a stellar actress in, in the lead female role, who's a, a an actress who we're going to be revisiting in a lot of these films, Tarana Aldusti, who was basically becoming the superstar actress of Iran at the time. Hmm. And this, this movie was part of that. She kind of is central to the other big uh, plot development in that when he does leave prison, the the young man uh, seeks out the sister of his friend who's condemned and they are, are working together to try to get uh, consent to uh, stay the execution. And during the course of this, uh, he, they, they start to have feelings for each other on his end. You have to kind of work with not the best actor, but she is definitely providing a, emotional core from her end it's a phenomenal performance of what is i think Ferrati's first phenomenal character what makes her so exceptional is that she shows how one person at any given moment and often in moments of a crisis have multiple things driving uh driving your actions and sometimes, and sometimes, and very often in cases, the things that drive you to do this or this action is a combination of things at once. She wants leniency for her brother, but she also you come across that there is a sense of adventure provided by this new person in her life. And it's also a way that it is a comparison for her much older husband that she's married to that at least has an impression for me that is more was an arrangement that put that put them together and at different points in the film one or more of these things is guiding is guiding her um uh, along the way and she delivers and but yet at other times the two desires are in conflict with each other and this is handled masterfully by in her performance in the part of the story we're talking about here is, uh, as we've said, the setup is that we have a friend trying to save a condemned prisoner by seeking uh, the permission of the wronged parent to um, stay the execution. So that's a good chunk of the film's running time. However, toward the end of the film, we essentially switch to a will they or won't they sort of love triangle that to me is just inherently less than uh, it has inherently lower stakes than the issues we've been dealing with previously. As was obvious, we were dealing with life and death 
here we're dealing with how will a life be spent. And to me, it's a difficult transition to set up this life and death question and then kind of go away from it toward the end. It, it, he hasn't quite figured out how to balance this film. And it, it really, despite the Aladusti's performance, it really sort of took me out of it and that I had been invested in that question and now I'm being asked to consider this to me what felt like a much lesser question and it's an example I think we'll see come up in other Farhadi films of a late kind of game change that he introduces I did find myself more invested in the relationship uh, maybe than you did mostly after a uh, reveal happens to put a little bit more stakes into their relationship, but I, I, I do I do agree that the meat of the film is the uh, the execution story and the attempt to stop it. I'm more forgiving of the relationship because I don't think it takes away from let's call it plot A, uh, which is something that builds throughout the film and gets more complicated in its own right, when the father who also has a another daughter who is disabled and, and can't really walk, and she needs an operation, and they desperately need money for that, and apparently in the legal wranglings over this execution, they can request this money in exchange for... Uh, showing mercy on on the the young man to be executed. The father has his reaction to that, but then just as interestingly, his own wife has a very different motivation in inserting herself into the that question. And this is another, I think, theme of Farhadi's we'll see come up in other films where we have the fate of a vulnerable character being a, a, a driving force in the film. The, the young um, disabled woman is not a central character in the film by any means, mm -hmm. but we have spent some time with her. And essentially the, the tension of the final act of the film comes down to, will our protagonist agree to marry this young handicapped woman and avoid his, thus uh, stay his friend's execution, or will he follow his heart and be with the sister whom he truly loves? And the film doesn't answer that question for us, but... I think for me, I just didn't get the mileage out of that because it is a sort of love triangle, although an interesting one from an Iranian societal perspective, because we really have this, this choice being forced upon our protagonist that is rooted in the honor and the financial well-being of a disabled character. So there's a lot of, it, 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 it's big, but it's less than the life or death question we saw earlier. And it, occurs so late in the film that I didn't have enough time uh, to get invested in it myself. And it sounds like you guys got a little further with it than I did. I think one of the key things that you said, Peter, is in, uh, in, in your great point is in a, is, but I think it's crystallized in a single word, which I think defines a particular gift on Ferrati and a gift on this movie and that is recasting. This movie is one the showcases the idea that in a, a, a place and a society where 
you have to be keenly aware of the things that you owe and are, you are required to go and provide for this person or this family or this group. But in this film, it's hinted at at the very ending of Dancing in the Dust. When the younger character settles his situation, then the older guy disappears. It's the idea that the thing that you give of yourself and the thing that the, per- that the person takes in return is not necessarily the same thing. <laughs> it's a different, it can be a different thing, but that, that it has an equal value, but for a different reason, for different people. That's a really amazing insight that I think Ferrati just provides through his films and shows his case here. There... In like the mother, the mother character, she wants to on the one she wants to go and make sure of a better life for her for her disabled daughter, for example. And the way you do that is actually allowing for the debt of the dead daughter to be wiped away by having this main character marry her. So this is just such an interesting way where the where debt and where the debt. And the guilt and leniency are all being like passed uh, passed around like some hot potato of responsibility. Actually, that's too flippant, <laughs> but because it's dealt with in the ultimate seriousness. And when you guys are talking about like life and death, one of the things I find remarkable about this film is how it actually isn't about that. A conventional American film would have when the subject is leniency about a person who's going to get the death penalty is the ticking clock scenario. There's how many days left and oh my God, will they get, be able to tell the information to the authorities in time? None of which is dealt with in this movie. The concern is not about the life and death of this character we're introduced to in the beginning of the movie. It's about what casting we have for the lives of the people who are left in his left in his wake like you said about the doctor character he's a healer person who's now fixated on revenge and his life is now defined by revenge and how will he recast his life but also there is the sense that there that the marriage that the character situated to be executed killed this girl in a sort of a, a sense of romant, doomed romantic love, and he try, was trying to go and kill himself as well. And so the idea is maybe for that family to be whole, that they need to, in an ironic way, they recast our main character's life instead of being a romantic one, one where it is arranged. And, it, and so, in other words, therefore providing security for the family has to take preference over the dangers of romantic love. So this way in this, I'm, I hope I'm doing an okay job of explaining how what we think upon romance and guilt and revenge is given an examination and then given an examination from another angle and then from yet another angle to give us this amazing, at least for me, an amazing level of appreciation for the complexity of the situation. Well, this level of complexity is going to uh, continue in Farhadi's next film without maybe quite that high of stakes. But uh, we're going to move on to Fireworks Wednesday, released in 2006.
As the festive pre-New Year's Iranian holiday begins, Rui, soon to be married herself, is sent by her agency to clean the apartment of a bickering married couple with a young son. She becomes far more involved with this family than she intended, as the wife strongly suspects her husband as being unfaithful, and Rui is drawn into this marital drama. Now here is a great case of a, a filmmaker who has taken a solid effort in his second movie of getting in a lot of the themes but then adding to it by some of the expressiveness that he did in his filmmaking that he was exploring in his first movie. And man, he locks this <laughs> in. This complexity that is borne out from the characters in their situation is now getting expressed beautifully by the building that they're in, the floors that they are, where people are located, and and the festival of fireworks that is like the time frame of the movie and the source of its title. And for me, most importantly, the performance from uh, Tarana Aladusti, who we expressed admiration for in the earlier film, but here absolutely rules this movie. She brings this wide-eyed innocence into her performance that is absolutely captivating. We see her at first with on the motor on a motorcycle with her husband to be and she has this spirit that I think maybe a good comparison would be uh, the character of Amelie in her oh, film. Yeah. Just as she looks at the world in a very innocent rose-colored way but this is going to be tested because she's going to end up witnessing what could be her future because she's going to be a newlywed and she's going to be put in and she's going to be around this marriage that has been around for a while and has taken a, a few hits and maybe on pretty unstable ground. And there's kind of two competing uh, ways in which she's involved with this. One is involuntarily because she keeps wanting to leave but never really can because <laughs> they keep bringing her into this marital strife and she's asked to spy for the wife and get more and more and more involved. Yet at the same time, I feel like this is there's a little bit of a rear window thing going on here where she's observing now this world that is so uh, foreign to her and so different, but because she's so passive in a way, she's just like Jimmy Stewart observing from the window without really being able to change the result. Oh, man, that is a great comparison. Uh, one of my favorite interpretations of Hitchcock's classic, in uh, a movie that actually rewards a great many interpretations, is one where, if you think about it, 
almost everybody in the various wind compartments that Jimmy Stewart is look, uh, looking at can make a commentary of the thoughts flowing around his head about his um, relatively strange ambivalence upon marrying Grace Kelly's character. <laughs> and here we're getting the very uh, a very young version of that facet. Just taking it in uh, and just this kind of breathless sense that I think actually informs some of the French New Wave films, specifically like the Truffaut films. This sense of, wow, the world is so can, is so wild and things can be so complex at times, and it's really a lot to take in. And, and let's just navigate and see how things turn, turn themselves out. This is the more holistic consideration of marriage I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Dancing in the Dust limitations. Mm -hmm. Marriage is very much the central theme of this story, and it really kind of lays out three possible, uh, really lays out three stages of marriage. We have the Aladusti character who is going to be a newlywed, who is very um, excited and looking forward to her life with her hu husband-to-be. And we absolutely need that perspective in this film because the world she enters is not a happy one. There are essentially two couples that she comes into contact with. The couples for whom she's working, um, I believe their names are Morteza and Mosdi. I, again, apologies if those are wrong. but um, And they are in the midst of, their marriage is crumbling. Um, there's potentially, uh, a, there's a suspected affair going on. And it's really just filled with tension and animosity and almost hate between the two parties. And then you have the, a, a third character, Samine, whose marriage has previously ended. And so you really have these three stages of marriage. You have the optimistic newlywed, the crumbling marriage and process of crumbling, and the marriage which has already ended. And it's re the, this movie is really taking you through those stages, and it'd be really oppressive if it wasn't for Aladusti and the fact that we identify with her and she takes us on this journey in a way that at least allows for some hope for the conclusion because there's a lot of bad in this movie. That's a really good point because the most traumatic scenes are the ones where she's not present. And there, there's, there's a scene that's actually absolutely brilliantly rendered when, um, uh, though the wife uh, is going to her husband's office uh, to confront him. He's in advertising and in a business meeting of some kind and is absolutely enraged that this is happening and, and that uh, she's basically left their son in the care of, of the cleaning woman that they hardly know. Mm -hmm. And, we and he goes down and we see in in an unbroken shot him going down an elevator and the camera never leaves the point of view of the elevator and he just goes out and starts beating her in the street and it's a horrifying scene made even more horrifying by the way Farhadi shoots it in which, the, again, the camera doesn't leave the elevator and instead the elevator goes back up mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have kind of, I think, for the first time now, the the marriage of brilliant storytelling and brilliant filmmaking happening in Farhadi. And just to give a quick shout out, the DP on this film is Hossein Jafarian, who he'll work with again. And mm-hmm. um, as I said, that that sequence really is a standout. And just wanted to give uh, Jafarian some credit as well. Yeah. But in fact, this is a film where every component of it is just magically gets itself aligned towards expressing these themes. We've said sometimes on this podcast about the idea on uh, German expressionism, the idea that something is depicted on a movie is not real, in, or is not meant to be realistic as much as honestly expressing the feelings and the sense of, and the emotions that the characters are experiencing or emotions that we that we get to experience directly through what we're viewing on on the image here in fireworks wednesday the dude does both he does both that apartment is such an absolute expressive cauldron there is a, a areas in the apartment that need to be repaired, and when they get and when they get fixed, or what gets and a window gets broken, they're also packing in order because they're going to uh, be paying a visit on vacation. And every disheveled piece of clothing and shattered window just adds in the meaning to add in on the tension of this of this disintegrating relationship and the um. And where the two main, where the characters in this central couple are in the state, of, uh, in the state of the relationship and in their relations to each other, and it's it's something that is just just remarkable to behold when someone's packing a suitcase and to go, oh, because that means that's happening. <laughs> well, and, and I think too this we've talked a little bit about like Farhadi's pet themes, and I think. A lot of his films are just set in a single like apartment setting, mm-hmm. and I think it it could go unnoticed. And frankly, I think I was guilty of it the first few times I saw his films. Is that there really has to be a high level of filmmaking to make these cramped quarters visually interesting? Yeah, right. And I think that you see that here maybe for the first time, and I think that'll really occur in every film from here on out. Um, so the visuals aren't really what jump out to you upon first watching a Farhadi film, but they ultimately have to be there. Otherwise, you won't be invested in the story. Well, this movie has two secret weapons as far as how strong its visuals can be. And one you've been alluding to, which is the house itself. And and I was particularly struck by the bathroom in the house in which the wife uses as a place to to spy. Yes, and be and she and this there's a a very rich blue uh, tile in, in mm-hmm. the bathroom, and it distinguishes itself from the rest of the settings. But the other thing is the fireworks Wednesday holiday itself, because what's going on all around them is the outside world is constantly a presence because people are lighting off fireworks all day long. The movie takes place 
only during the course of a day throughout the evening. And this is a holiday that's meant to be the festive opening to a week-long New Year holiday in Iran. And apparently New Year's Eve itself is a little bit more of a place to share with your family. And Fireworks Wednesday is when people go a little crazy. And so from the beginning of the film, uh, it only increases in its effect as you get into evening time, seeing characters driving along and going to their destinations and dealing with these issues all while fireworks are going off all around them. Yeah, and the theme of the new year ties into newlyweds as Mm -hmm. well, someone going on a new journey, which the Aladusta character will be doing. Um, and really, my perhaps my favorite sequence of the film, even more so than the elevator sequence we talked about earlier, is late in the film, um, and we'll get to this in a minute, but one character is being driven home by another. And there's this long journey down a dark road where these fireworks are constantly going off. And I thought that sequence worked beautifully as a metaphor for marriage. You're in this dark road to the unknown, all these explosions going on around you, but you're ultimately trying to get home. And I think that that's really what the film is about. It's told in this one sequence, which I thought worked brilliantly well. This sequence is an ultimate, absolute home run. I am so with you on that. One of the greatest like uh, films to comment upon, like marriage and its dissolution, I've found is is a film called Blue Valentine. And Blue Valentine has the world's saddest fireworks in, in, an, in a concluding scene on it. And in that, the, the, uh, the, doomed, the doomed relationship is expressed so brilliantly in, fire, in the, the fireworks that happen at the end of that film in the sense that there are these moments that burn very, very bright, but you're also so aware of the um, ephemeral how they're how they will only spark for just a short period of time. I bring that up because that's one great moment in Blue Valentine. That's 25 minutes long mm-hmm. in the end of Fireworks Wednesday. In addition to that tunnel thing which is that metaphor you described is just so great. The idea is you it's so much is unknown and there's so many sparks, but then the sparks will go, but you're the, you still need to get yourself home. But then also when you when later in the movie a character who is sort of lost his home, lost his relationship, he's walking in you know, pet to a gate, and at the gate on the other side, all these fireworks are showing up, and and that leads. That's I find just so much poetically devastating because there's so much festivities, but it's a barrier that he's approaching that he can see, but he can't experience firsthand, and it's just uh, it, it's jaw dropping how it has this pure cinema power on a pure emotional. On a pure emotional feeling. Well, he ends up uh, playing with genre in this way because it's filmed almost like a suspense scene. Yes. But the content isn't suspenseful. Nobody is really in danger here. But between the fireworks and the fact that Rui is so in over her head and so in this strange environment Mm -hmm. uh, 
puts us in a place where we're a little nervous for her. Also, she's she's observing things she's not supposed to be mm-hmm. observing. At the same time, other elements of the film play with uh, screwball comedy formats and the various uh, mechanisms of spying and keeping secrets. And there's a scene where uh, Ruri is sent to this uh, to a beauty shop, both to get her uh, eyebrows done in preparation for the wedding and also to do some spying herself. And it's kind of to the film's credit and to the performance that we're not entirely sure which one is foremost on her mind in that scene. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> and I do, I do like the sequence because it works in the way you're talking about, but it also gets at the themes we were talking about, the different stages of marriage. And... It really, to me, called in the question about where do we think um, Ruhi's marriage is going to go? Because the, the setup for this is that, as you mentioned, Brad, she's sent to a beauty parlor. This beauty parlor is operating in the same apartment building where she's working. And the reason that um, Morteza, the wife, is spying on her husband, she believes her husband is having an affair with the operator of this beauty parlor. So she sends her, she sends Ruhi in to kind of suss out the situation, see what she can find out. Now, later, later, um, the, when the elevator sequence we talked about happens because, um, Marteza has gone to spy on her husband cause she thinks he may be with the woman. Um, later after she finds, after she's discovered, there's a long sequence in the apartment where the husband again, like, uh, says I'm not cheating on her on you, and they literally pass their child back and forth between yeah, them, right. um, <laughs> like like a pawn. And this is another example of a vulnerable character and Farhadi being put in a perilous situation. Mm-hmm. But here, like we have such tension, and Ruhi's reaction is to knowingly lie and diffuse the tension. Right. So yeah. here. We have an. To me, this is an example. And I talked about how is Farhadi going big, and why is he doing it? Here, I think he's going big. This is a melodramatic situation. We have a, f- a couple fighting, literally handing their child back and forth as they argue, and we have a lie being a knowing lie being told. But it's in the service of commenting upon where this, uh, where Ruhi's marriage may go in the future, because if she's capable of lying now, when her own marriage reaches a similar point in the future, is that do we think that's what she'll do then? And is that is ultimately where all marriages are headed. And so I think this is an example of going big, but it working. Um, Whereas maybe in later movies we'll talk about, I I don't quite get there, but here he's for this, for an still an early film, he's really in command of things and the balance is uh, very good. And this film sticks with you. Right, we are placed in an incredibly nuanced ethical position to do, to be dishonest. Is that the right thing to do? And also, the sense of responsibility. How much does it weigh on her to go and um, make sure that this this situation is stable? Obviously, it's an employment situation, and that does touch on that. But also... How much of that is you trying to do better for them and how much of that, to your point, Peter, is how much to, to do things for yourself or to guide yourself in a way about how you're dealing with your upcoming 
marriage arrangement. Once again, these just issues are dealt with in this incredible combination of complexity, contradiction, and a graceful movement through all of these in a way that comes across in a, a really organic manner. He really doesn't do villains. He, everybody, even if we don't agree with everything they've done, is viewed with some sympathy. And so, yeah, we, we do find out the affair actually happened, but it's not revealed in a dismissive way. And the, what could have been the cliche of the other woman is basically humanized. I think that might be one of the greatest gifts of these films is that we constantly are reminded of everyone's humanity and value and, and the empathy in which they should be treated with. Their point of view is honored. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mentioned on the podcast before, my favorite movie quote is Roger Ebert's machines are uh, movies are machines which generate empathy. And for Hottie's a great example of that. I, I think you, you said it very well, Brad. And this is a, an early example of that. Mm -hmm. It's a very particular gift that I think Roddy's just gets to bestow on us. Now, from there, Roddy goes deeper on both a story and a setting level in his next movie about Ellie, released in 2009. something friends, most with spouses and children, head out to the Caspian Sea for a weekend vacation at the beach. One friend brings along Ellie, their daughter's teacher, and tries to fix her up with a single guy in the group. Uh, turns out they, the group doesn't really know that much about Ellie at all, and when one of the children almost drowns and Ellie is nowhere to be found, tensions quickly build. About Ellie provides a look at Iranian culture that I've never seen in any other film and would certainly be more common for folks living in the country. But I think for those of us who are outsiders, it's interesting to see what happens when just a group of young people with families get together and spend time together. It reminded me of uh, John Sayles' first film, uh, The Return of the Secaucus 7. Mm. And the first part of the film is really spent just getting to know these characters in a casual situation and really just getting to know, to know the dynamics of these characters in a fun way before those dynamics are tested. It's interesting, Brad, that in your setup, you mentioned the two halves of this film because <clears throat> about Ellie to me exemplifies both what I love about Farhadi, 
and the part of him I have reservations about. So the first half of the film is very well observed family interaction. It establishes characters and their relations to each other just through everyday behavior. Dealing with the uh, adversity of not having the room you thought you reserved or the place you thought you reserved. Um, introducing a new character into a situation which is a far haughty hallmark. You have an outsider coming into a family situation, which Ellie is here. It's so well done because I think everyone can identify with that type of situation. Vacations can be stressful, certainly, and you're stuck in some, some small place with people on a constant basis. So that's all great. That's, that's set up. And then the second half happens. So we have the demarcation point being a child disappearing and potentially drowning. So the setup for this is that we have Ellie watching the children on the beach and then one child goes out into the water and another small child yells to her parents that the child is drowning. So you have this almost hysterical sequence of these people running around looking for this child. And it's another Farhadi hallmark of a, a vulnerable character put into danger. And this veers very close to manipulation for me because we have a young helpless child in, in being in danger. So from there, the child is rescued, but Ellie disappears. And no one knows what has happened to her. This leads into the second half of the film in which the family... Uh, this tragedy or presumed tragedy exposes fault lines within the family. And what proceeds to happen, at least from my perspective, is that a series of implausible and outlandish lies are told. And I think what Farhadi's getting at is what we've talked about in other films is a tense situation exposing the hidden um, faults in a family. But the problem here, at least to me, and I know you guys feel differently about this film, is that the behavior is so, to me at least, so outlandish that it seems like Farhadi has misjudged the film and that he's trying to, he places so much emphasis on ramping up the tension between these characters that he forgets the, to ground them in reality. And I comp got completely lost in the second half of this film it's to the point where I was like, well, if I was Ellie, I would have left too. I mean, like they, these folks are just, it, it, it's almost like they're in a reality show hmm. that they're not recognizable humans anymore. They're just tension delivery machines. And I was, I was out to sea <laughs> from the <laughs> film at this point. Um, my impression was was very much the opposite because I was sensing character development going on throughout all this, and the first half and the second half really informing each other because the other key character uh, besides Ellie is Sepeda is the one of the wives who was the one to invite Ellie with the group. And what we find out is that she's somewhat of a domineering force in this group of friends and very much always trying to dictate how things are going to be run uh, to the extent that even her husband is frustrated by that. And 
so she brings Ellie into this group without knowing much about her. So Ellie is very much an enigma. And we learn about her in in the second half. It's also interesting to me uh, that Ellie is played by Tarana Aladusti, who we've talked about in previous films, and with a smaller role is still excellent. But what's interesting about that casting to me is how it would have appeared to Iranian audiences that she's the biggest star. When we watched it for the first time, I don't think any of us knew who she was. So she seemed like one of a, an ensemble. But what she was, she was very much meant to have attention brought to herself, not just because her name is in the title, but because she's played by the most famous actress. And so when you get the scene of her flying a kite while uh, the boy might be drowning and just kind of caught up in her own world, it's a very dreamlike moment because we just don't know where she's coming from here. And that is a tense moment. What's even more tense, though, is the rescue of the child in what I think is the best scene of its kind this side of Roma. And when I watched Roma, mm, the, right. the drowning scene in Roma reminded me of About Ellie. We've got the camera in the water. We've got this desperate rescues going on. And for, and, and now Farhadi is fully into thriller mode. So this halfway point, I, I think is one of the most extraordinary pieces of filmmaking Farhadi has embarked on and creates this amazing part one and part two dynamic. See, I guess I feel like it's hard to pull off putting a child in danger without it being manipulative to me. I think Roma is a good example of it working. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, just to contrast this with, and this is going to involve spoilers for an unrelated film. So I recently watched a 2007 Lee Chang Dong film, <coughs> um, uh, Secret Sunshine. And then that film also invo involves a child in danger. Um, and actually the child is, is kidnapped. But the way that Chang Dong deals with it is there's about 10 minutes of screen time and then the child is found out to have, have died. So th then the film proceeds to have that tragedy illuminate the, ca the, the child's mother and the character of the town around her. So to me, like that's an example of a director, uh, in that case, Lee Chang Dong, taking kind of a cinematic hallmark of an endangered child and doing something different with it here. Like I feel like Farhadi uses that in a manipulative way because he puts a child in danger and makes a thriller out of it. And that, and it just feels like a very kind of standard um, classicist thing to do. And he doesn't, I mean, it's filmed well. The DP again is here, Hossein Jafarian, but I, I felt manipulated by it. I felt like this whole sequence was meant to like be a change of pace and kick up the film into a different register. 
but I, we we didn't really at that point have a sense of like that being all that meaningful other than that as being a device to manipulate the emotional register of the film. Hmm. Uh, I do see that. For me, it's a hell of a lot less of an issue. And part of which is ties into a very great aspect of Ferrati that he was shown from uh, the beautiful city onwards, which is ostensibly about a guy facing execution, but it turns out the important thing on the concern in the story is not about that. That's just a driving incident. And when you look past the driving incident to see what happens to that group, there's a duality in the beginning because in a very friendly environment, even though it's, it's not the place that they meant to be, which is a great metaphorical, uh, another great use of location, like, and Ferrati uses this dilapidated shack and, the, and particularly a very nice moment by the ocean of a gate that seems to open to nowhere. <laughs> it's just a gate sitting on, jutting on a, on a set of rocks facing the ocean. But these characters, while comfortable with each other, have their own secrets, lies, and agreements to things unsaid. And so... While I see what you mean in regards towards using the uh, idea of a missing child or a possibly a dead child as a, as a clear, inciting event, I'm able to look past that and go, well, let, look at the implications of what it means to that group. And, and, and that's fine. Uh, I, I can see your point on that. I, I think part of my issue with this, too, is just how this sequence is... is is executed because it really has sort of different ebbs and flows if you pardon the pun mm -hmm. um that the sequence probably lasts maybe 10 minutes i would say and you have a sequence of first the parents not listening to the daughter telling them that the brother has gone out to sea so that that's tension there then they amp up the tension because they first can't find the child anywhere so that's another escalation finally you see the child and then you have yet another escalation of of them being swimming against the current or against the tide to go out and get them finally they get the child back and then there's yet another beat of like will the cpr work and like there's all this like huge drama in this short period of time with a again a the vulnerable character put in danger that i i guess i i understand what you're saying but the particular execution of this and the just constant escalation into drama was just too much for me in a short period of time. See, I didn't get the same impression because partially because there was no buildup, I felt it was a lot more realistic because you know what? If you're by the sea and you've got children there always is that chance. Everybody who vacations by the sea with kids thinks about it. Mm. And they are only comfortable because they've left Ellie in charge. And they have confidence that Ellie is going to be a trustworthy person who is going to be sure their kids are okay. So the... Un so there has to be a crisis point in the film in order to basically see what these characters are really made out of, which is what 
part two of the film mm. is going to do. And as a crisis point, I, I didn't find it really to be that manipulative. I found it to be pretty much something horrific, but something that could easily, that, that is easily believable on a plot level and much more resonant because it so skillfully sets up the enigma of Ellie because we do not know if she has drowned or if she has just left. And so, yes, there's all this tension in the scene itself, but it's something that I think is organic to the film because we're not going to have these deep-seated questions about Ellie unless something triggers it. See, I, I guess, and I agree with you in part and disagree in part because I, I think to me the issue is just it's too big too fast for mm -hmm. me. But I do agree on your point about the enigmatic Ellie, right? And, and up to this point, uh, Aladuste is giving a very different performance than she gave in Fireworks Wednesday. In the prior film, she's very um, buoyant, very uh, excited. Here, she's very reticent, uh, very withdrawn, kind of uncomfortable in the spotlight the family has given, given her. Um, however, shortly before the, uh, the near drowning and her disappearance, we have the kite flying montage you're talking about, Brad, where it, it, this skillfully edited set of scenes that actually show her smiling, enjoying herself, and then that's the last you see of her. Right. So you see these two different sides of the character, the reticent, mm -hmm. someone who's hiding something, and then the other side of her, which is joyous and capable of that. So it's a nice juxtaposition <laughs> and a nice way to have the the potentially at least, a nice way to have the consideration of a character that occurs in the second half. My problem is just more of how he does it. And I, I think it's, as I said, just too big, too fast. Okay. Now, one of the things that's really cool on the film is what does it say about what Ellie has to do? That when she's in this, in, in, with these people, she has to be so withdrawn. When her real spirit is so absolutely open and joyful. And it's actually a testament not just to her performance, but also, frankly, her star power, that she can be so withdrawn and yet have us asking the question of, like, what is she, what is she really about? Because then we're now dealing with her absence in the second part. And all the, and the questions everybody has about her. But then... It leads to questions about each other, particularly when everyone uh, turns on Sepeda is a very powerful moment. But it's, it's not just that. It's basically th this ideal has been broken, this mm. kind of facade of we're great friends and everything is just perfect. Now that there's a ghost in the machine... Every single relationship is called into question. In terms of the how that relates to the inciting incident, there's just two disparate elements I want to bring up. One of which is, is how you had said they entrust Ellie to take care of the kids. And I think that's an, an, a very key point of the movie. Why did they do that? Why did they feel that this person, that they, as they reveal in the second half of the movie, they know almost nothing about, 
is somebody that is worth it for them, for, is, is someone that they can go and entrust their children with to be by the seashore. And the reason I think that is, or I think one of the reasons why it is, is because through her youth and through her station, she is somebody that that group can manipulate. That someone that 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 they can basically tell her what to do and guide her to do the things that they want. She's treated as a curiosity and almost, in a sense, as like a plaything, which makes the kite flying interests, I believe, potentially more, even more interesting that that's the last we see of her. Although she's also a teacher, so it would make some sense to assume that she's good with kids and would know how to take care of them. That's true, but that's true, but what they don't value is anything that she has, anything she has to teach or any insight that she has about the kids for that, for mm -hmm. example. To me, what Farhadi's going for here is a commentary on the cloistered nature of Iranian society. I think that's what he's trying to say, is that there's this this group of people all with kind of all stuck within themselves and can't see in this very narcissistic way that they don't ever really pay attention to the feelings of this other person, this outsider. As you mentioned, Al, they, they, they almost, they take Ellie's phone away from her. They hide it. Mm -hmm. um, they hide her bag. I mean, there are these ridiculous steps that are taken to make sure she doesn't leave. Well, this is all just from Sepeda though. It's not the others. Well, yes, but then it's been clear. It's been clear that like she is. Tr they're trying to set her up with the friend, mm -hmm. and uh, and Ellie's knowledge that that is in fact what's happening is not really given a proper level of respect, even from the other members who do know that this is right. happening. Well, and, and to be clear, like Sepeda, but it's a good-natured manipulation from their perspective. Right. Like they don't see themselves as being as being malevolent in any way. Mm -hmm. But what the second half of the film wants to do is kind of pull that away and say that there's really this kind of uh, more uh, there's there's a darker side to this control than has been than the the controllers want you to believe. They may think they're good and that they may think they're just pulling someone into their group, but really that sort of lack of freedom is is harmful and I, I think there are certain things amongst the very the various members of the group for example there's uh there's one character who wears very uh, consistently wears american logos like he has yes he has von a von dutch shirt a nike jumpsuit mm -hmm. um, or tracksuit i should say um so i think he's commenting on different sects of iranian culture mm -hmm. and again I, I feel like that's a laudable goal and in a more measured film could have been done very well, but the second half has these th this escalation of lies and misstatements that I, I just couldn't read into these characters as being recognizably human anymore. Um, and it took me out of the film. And they're really, like, the second half of the film involves them, like, deciding when to call Ellie's mother to tell her she's missing, um, when to, they, they call someone who they think is their brother, but really, they think is her brother, but really uh, find out they're the fiance. And they do this in all these ways where they're incapable of telling anyone the truth. They, they call the mother, um, but don't, uh, then just kind of hang up. They don't tell her what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and then the family members who made that call return to the, the villa they're at and lie about having talked to the mother at all, which... I'm not quite sure what is gained by lying to the other members of their group that they talk to the mother. Um, 
when they do later call the fiance, they lie about her disappearance and say she's in a car crash. So mm -hmm. they substitute car crash for drowning. Mm -hmm. And then later when the fiance arrives on the scene, they bring him uh, to call the mother and break the news to her, basically. So they've outsourced this, this stressful uh, requirement. And then when he discovers a joke that the family's had that, uh, that Ellie is a newlywed, and they, they think like, oh, now they're, they're, he's going to find out that, he, that Ellie was being set up with a family member. They just hit the road. They leave the guy at the, the place where he's making the call to, and get the fuck out of Dodge and like run away from him, basically, and make him walk back to the villa. It's just like the series of implausible explanations that I think Farhadi wants to say are coming out of the tension of the moment. But if, it, if it's that elevated to only make the point that these people are going to make terrible decisions under, under a, a tough situation and turn on each other, I needed more of a reason to get that big. And the second half just doesn't give me that reason. The, um, there is, I find that there's just a really powerful reason uh, why they behave that way. Um, with regards to one of the characters in About Ellie, uh, but there is a second one, one that uh, maybe we are um, in this culture is a little difficult to appreciate, which is that when they have uh, when they have El when Ellie has dropped by and they feel that she is completely unattached, there is it's. It's very it's clear to me that there is an incredible importance placed upon like placed upon when a man makes the engagement. It is a force an iron contract that like that unlike here in this culture like every aspect of Iranian society is has a sense of dedication towards making sure that contract is properly honored. It's a big deal, and in fact, is a is a there's a gigantic awareness on a society level of the financial cost involved in make someone making this sense of an engagement. So when they find out that Ellie is engaged, I, I'm going to give a terrible analogy. It's like as if they find out that she's been a spy for the government and, and she drowned with a bunch of secrets. Like, oh my, that's why their frantic nature was something that I found way more believable. And there, as is their reason for like saying he must not know about that, uh, not know about that this situation was a romantic setup. It's given kind of an, in a way that may feel false, that the fact that like, they were setting up his fiance is almost treated as dramatically important and as vital as if she is even alive or not. Well, well and, and part of the reason they're so angry at Sepeda is that they almost feel like she's secretly dishonored them because she knew Ellie was engaged. Mm -hmm. And then this is another secret that comes out is that she yes. was okay with setting up an engaged woman. Yes. Whereas the others now a party to this deception were not. But the thing is, is like all of these other kind of ancillary lies I was talking about aren't really jumping out of that situation. They're more just like there to have more tension between the family, I think. And that's the disconnect I get is like, there's just too much 
this is an example for me of Farhadi's too much drama. Mm -hmm. And I just don't feel like that, I will fully admit, maybe it's my lack of knowledge of Iranian society. Maybe like the fact that you're messing around with engagement really is just like you're going to be, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to be exiled from the community once this is found out. Mm -hmm. But to me, like from a pure individual relationship level as portrayed in this film without that knowledge the height of the drama smacked me out of the story there's kind of a a combination of good intentions and bad judgment in some of the lies i mean i think the one that's probably the most egregious is telling the fiance that she was in a car crash and is in the hospital instead of we don't know where she is and we think she might have drowned i mean that is a I mean, first of all, it's a lie. But second of all, it's a lie that is sure to be discovered because eventually we're going to he's going to know pretty quick that she's not in the local hospital. So uh, I can kind of see that. be, And it is off putting. I think it's meant to be off putting because they they're already panicked from Ellie being missing from a child almost drowning. They're already at each other's throats and accusations are flying back and forth. And now they've got to deal with this entirely new X factor, which is the fiance, which they, they have first thinking it's the brother are all prepared to handle him in one way. Then finding out his, he's the fiance. They are all over the place and they make some really bad decisions. And, I don't know. I I felt I I don't feel like those lies are kind of a mistake of the script. I feel like it exposes flaws in the character. The way that I felt that even their frantic and and ridiculous lies, not since um, the main character from Ferrati's first movie has have people done something as expressly straight ahead stupid as making up the idea about the. Uh, car crash and it's a hospital i understand the motivations and the motivations come from they don't want him to feel that it's because she was saving a kid who wasn't there wasn't hers in other words they don't want to put up that there was any sense where she it where they were putting some responsibility on ellie that they and therefore they were responsible for her potential demise but where i think that franticness absolutely works is because it, in a weird way, even though it's a group of people of all their different feelings, desires, motivations, and what have you, in a way it is a function and their franticness is a function of the domineering presence at its center of Sebeda. Sebeda, to me, is one of the most tragic depictions of female oppression that I've that I've ever seen this side of the passion of Joan of Arc. It's the female drama version of like uh one one of like in a Amer- of like a gangster film where the gangster guy starts off on top but then finds out that things are nipping at his heels and ends up in a really wor- way worse place. There is a sense when I see this movie that that she has set things up because she is not in a world where she can control much of what happens to her life. But she is a big presence, and she does, She has these impulses and 
desires to control and have a sense of authority that's not allowed her in in a conventional way. So she, it has to be. It's part of her character. She has to manifest it by lies, secrets, hiding bags, hiding cell phones, and setting people up. And when when you say, Brad, that part that the rest of the group feels that like they've dishonored her by by having her set up with a while she's engaged that's what she does <laughs> that's what Sibida does and what but why does she do it because partly because she thinks that Ellie does in fact not want to be in that marriage and partly cuz she herself feels she can do something to get her out of that marriage mm-hmm. and partly because yet again another part is that she a way that she can show authority for herself is to say I can decide whether her marriage is going to be her engagement is going to be successful or not it's um uh, so there is a re- very cool detail when she finds out that Ellie is in the water more than any other member of the group. She goes absolutely nuts. She nearly goes and drowns herself looking in the, looking in the water, and and she's an absolute wreck. And the reason that I feel that that's the the reason that's the case is because she has invested. It was her project, in a way. It was something that she felt. Oh, here I'm gonna I'm gonna lead my group of friends over here. I'm gonna show them a good time. I'm gonna uh, show them what's enjoyable and. I'm going to integrate, and I'm going to integrate this new person into the group. And that's what makes it so much more tense that she's the one who has to ride home with the fiance yep. and has all those interactions with him is because in addition to the responsibility others are putting on her, she feels the guilt herself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so... That franticness that you've that you described manifesting through like all these all the groups dynamics, I feel I look at it and I find her as a great lens for it. I think she's kind of the ultimate example of that sense of narcissism. But it's not narcissism in her case because it really is one of the very limited ways she can go and express authority and control and dominate a group is in this particular manner. But I think that level of self-involvement, she's the ultimate example of that. And so the other characters, while remaining independent, are reflections of that attitude that she kind of epitomizes. That's kind of why I say the first half of About Ellie is sort of the ultimate good version of A Big Chill. And the second half of About Ellie is the explicit criticism of the character of that kind of mindset, the idea of people being satisfied of look at how well we have things. I think it's no coincidence that there's a very there's an image of people desperately trying to yank their BMW out of a out of a something you may have found a little yeah. on the nose. Yeah, but see, see, I really enjoyed that. See, that, that's one of the things I, w- I wanted to mention is that <clears throat> later in, in the films we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll also we'll always, we we will often have an ending image to talk about. Here um, we have <laughs> we have a car 
uh, which is stuck in the mud on the beach. The reason the car is there is because at one point they're told if Ellie's body is going to show up, it'll be washed in when the tide comes in at night. So one of the characters sits in the car on the beach, and as it's left there and the tide comes in once again, uh, it's stuck in the mud. And this is the ending image of the film. Farhadi shows us the family uh, back try- behind the car trying to push it out of of the of the mud it's stuck in mm-hmm. and, and that is really that that that's again for me too much like that is really on the nose it for for that to be the final image of the film really to me demonstrated the misjudgment Farhadi shown in the second half of the film i have to say me i'm personally very responsive to that sentiment so i guess that's why i found it a bit of um delicious candy whereas you might have thought it just a little a little too much cotton candy. yeah i i was uh yeah my, my sugar high had dissipated <laughs> <laughs> all right well there may be more agreement when we move on to Frahadi's next film a separation released in 2011 so let's leave it alone because we can't see eye to eye Disenchanted with life in Iran and wanting to move their daughter overseas, Simmons seeks a divorce from her husband, Nader. When the request is denied, Simmons moves out and Nader is left with his daughter and hires a deeply religious young woman to care for his ailing father. When the restrictions of her faith lead to negligence in caring for the old man, Nader's angry response opens up a world of unexpected consequences. This won the uh, Academy Award for Best Foreign Film, and I think it's generally perceived um, as one of the best films of the decade. For me, it, it is the best film of this decade so far that I've seen. I had an experience in the theater watching this that was personally unforgettable. We all go to a lot of movies, and we, we certainly enjoy many of them and and love some for different reasons but one of the pitfalls of being movie buffs uh is that seeing so many movies you you kind of get to know formula and even in the the quality ones you kind of can see where it's going. There might be a twist to confuse you, but generally there's a direction when I saw Separation for the first time, I got that giddy feeling that I used to have as a kid going to movies where I was like, there is such a high level of creativity going on. There is no way for me to predict where this movie is going. This movie, while being realistic, is so full of openness as to what can happen in life. It's not limited by linear plot or writing devices. It's it's a living film. 
and and it's so special and uh and so essential and i think we've now seeing a lot of ferhadi we see that it's indicative of of the kind of thing he does but witnessing this for the first time was just incredible i had an, and i had an experience at the same time but for and it was startling but for a totally different reason it was at the mu- the fine music box theater in chicago and i had just come from a 24 hour festival <laughs> of cult movies I had heard about this film and I wanted to see it the moment it had come out. And I saw it four hours after this festival, <laughs> which I stayed awake on for 20 of the 24 hours. And after the movie was done, I had forgotten of every single other movie I had seen for the last two weeks <laughs> because my head was so full of what a, what this film had to offer and it were so many things of what that to think about contemplate and feel about this film and this also had a similar effect on this audience because uh, one of the it was one of those rare moments where the crowd was completely silent as they all left the theater Everyone was so captivated and lost in thought for this for this film. Yeah, if About Ellie for me was an example of Farhadi uh, losing balance and going too big too soon or too high too soon, this is the opposite of that. This is the this is the example where he gets pretty much everything right. Um, not to say that the film is is small it's not it has so much on its mind and digs into each of those things so well that it really is a a prime example of great filmmaking um, at its best Um, we do we do follow his a lot of his pet themes it's about marriage we have an outsider introduced into a family Um, we have vulnerable characters put in danger but it's all done in the service of recognizing different levels of division in Iranian society. And there's so much to chew on with this movie that watching it again recently for this podcast, I just, I was reminded of its uncommon depth and the uncommon grace it shows in plumbing those depths. Um, Roger Ebert had a great line about, Another incredible movie that I put in my top 20 along with a separation, E2 Mama uh, Tambien. I'm, I, it's weird how, by the way, how Curion needs almost an appendix credit for this podcast <laughs> on, on, uh, on another, ostensibly another director. But Ebert's quote on E2 Mama Tambien is, the plot of that movie is, you could summarize it as, after that summer, nothing was the same. But the movie redefines what Nothing is. A separation starts off big with a very heated and intense argument. And it is one of its marks of absolute brilliance that it redefines and continues to redefine what big means over the course of this film. 
that escalation that you had described in about Ellie has rarely ever been done to better or more perfect meaning and effect in a separation as when you start from two couple from a couple and there's not even you don't even see a third party they're facing us on camera directly addressing the camera exactly and from there it moves its world and the divisions that we see in the beginning from these two people and it moves that sense across a bigger group and a bigger group and an even bigger group in a way to like tie in the most intimate divisions between two people can be a reflection and in and an inspired way to think about an entire society and it introduces that society to outsiders like we are in a way that it becomes completely comprehensible the divorce system in iran does not work the way divorce works in the west it is purely religious based so when the wife is talking about how she wants to raise her child elsewhere we realize this is a potentially blasphemous thing to say and a dangerous thing to say and you could see her choosing her words very carefully and you're you're right al it does kind of bring this to a societal level because you're talking about change versus tradition with the husband having to take care of his father representing the old guard the uh prior generations and then we see so much of it through their daughter's point of view and the way the future is looking at that so every decision that's made is consequential and affects not just them but this circle which as you rightly described keeps on widening yeah there's a moment uh, 10 minutes in where it widened just a certain degree that i felt the same feeling that you did brad that self of overwhelming awe that i'm that i'm witnessing a remarkable situation depicted in front of my very eyes and it's it's where they they call they call this younger lady to be the maid and then but then she needs to go and take go to the hospital and she says to the hu- for the husband for her husband to show up but she tells one member of the family but not the other and then at the same time the main couple does not know that the other person is there at the hospital already so there is a moment when they arrive and go wait what are you doing here another character says the effect of what are you doing here and i felt this just astoundment astounding moment that every single person is there for a very good both a very good reason and one they cannot tell the other person is why the reason that they're really there and this way about and it was amazing it's just about a visit to a hospital and yet it goes and takes shows how something can be brought into such complexity just by due to the fact that different people have different reasons for being where they are agreed and 
what I really like about the film is how it sets all those up within the context of this apartment. So you start off with the main family and their one daughter. As you said, Al, the film starts with the context of their divorce proceedings. The female, uh, the, the wife wants to leave. She has a travel visa. I don't know if they say exactly where they're going, but it's to the West anyway, it's implied. Mm-hmm. And the husband w- won't leave because he needs to care for his father who has Alzheimer's. So that right away, there's that's an inherent dramatic uh, past versus future um, like tension. And we don't know how that's going to play out, but into this um, scene is pushed a maid who is, um, because of limited financial means, asked to care about this uh, elderly man who she's not a nurse. She really has no business or training to take care of this person. But because of the family's limited budget and her need of of uh, income, she takes the position. She also has uh, a young daughter she brings with her. So right away we have these divisions set up. We have the division between um, husband and wife in the marriage. Um, we have the division between men and women here in Iranian society, because I think that's underscored by the fact that the woman wants to leave Iranian society for I, I think a, a situation which is implied where she'll have more freedom. And then we have the distinction between in class between this family with a, um, a nice apartment, a, a decent enough job to afford a caretaker at least, and someone who is now going to be their maid, who um, similar to Fireworks Wednesday, the length of her commute to work is referenced. And she says she has a long way to go. So um, both geographically and metaphorically, she's a long way from these people financially. And then where the story goes from there is into the tension between faith and secu- a secularism. Um, I think that's the, the main character through the tension of the main um, events of the film uh, turns to her faith, whereas it's implied that the husband is dealing uh, with this situation in a secular, secular way. We mm-hmm. talked earlier about the restrictions that Iranian censorship puts on films and this film seems to very much address a lot of those issues because the the first source of tension with the maid is that the old man has has soiled himself and nobody's nobody's there except for her and because of the religious edicts of the society women are not supposed to touch men who are not their husbands and especially in a way that would be required to clean them. So he, she has to actually make a call to uh, a, re- a religious hotline to find out what the right thing to do is. She is so distressed and, and, and upset by this situation that we talked about kind of bad decision making in the uh, earlier film. I mean, this is about as, ba- as bad decision making as it gets. And that when she has to go out, she basically uh, ties the old man up so that he can't uh, get anywhere. I mean, not not in a way that's malicious, but just so that he doesn't hurt himself. And so when the husband comes home and is utterly enraged by this. You understand why he's enraged, 
But you also understand from her perspective, being in a situation she should never have been in, where she's coming from. So it's really high tragedy because all parties here have reason to feel justified, yet the yet the situation has put them on a course that nobody can come out of this unscathed. Yeah, in, in my mind, like an alternate title for this film is really hopelessly divided. Mm-hmm. That it really demonstrates the practical impossibility of bridging these ga- the various gaps we've talked about, and. It's because of that that everyone has a reason, right? Like a justifiable reason for the way they act. And the key, I really love that this film is titled The Separation because it really is about the impossibility of, of, of union in any number of ways. And it, it's such a heavy film in that way because you, you come out of this feeling like, at least I did, coming out of feeling like, we may not make it <laughs> as a society, or at least Iran society has a lot of problems to face. And it's because it roots this societal um, schism in this personal conflict. And you just see how all that ratchets up. And this, uh, and to me, this is a, a perfect, this is a perfect example of Farhadi's skills as a filmmaker, because here you do need that escalation from personal to societal and he pulls it off very well. This is the kind of thing that Beautiful City set up with the moral ambiguities that the father had to go through, and and they're paid off in a separation. We, We should talk about kind of the turning point of the movie, which takes place after the husband gets back and and sees his father tied up and uh there's some money that's missing that he assumes that the maid has stolen and they are both at the highest of tempers the the tension could not be worse and he shoves her out the door now again in Iranian society you are not supposed to touch a woman who is not your wife. So in addition to how bad any kind of laying on hands would be anywhere, there's an added dimension of shame in this situation. And we don't see what happens when she uh, goes out the door. And by the way, if, it's not already apparent we're going to be heading into spoiler territory mm-hmm. for this film because the things that happen just keep building and building. Before before mm-hmm. you get into that territory, I want to say that's one of the key things that is uh, incredible upon here is, like you said, the tensions are at an all-time high, but they're, they're at an all-time for... The competing different reasons, the values that these people have, this guy's belief on money, which ironically was part of the reason that he had hired such a maid which wasn't as fully qualified as a nurse Mm -hmm. in the first place, puts a really big wrinkle on it, combined with her feelings of, apart from everything, needing to be put in a place where she doesn't feel it's fully religiously appropriate 
but also for money. So these really big core interests that drive people, they're orbiting around at like a million miles an hour and and it causes a vortex that to your point, Peter, people find incredibly difficult, if not outright impossible to escape. And if this isn't uh, enough, she claims afterwards that she was pregnant and that pushing her sent her down the stairs and she lost the baby in a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. The truth of this is called into question. And much of the latter half of the film will involve getting to the bottom of what actually happened in this incident, but it also brings in yet another character. And this is kind of what I was talking about at the beginning is how you don't know where the movie's going and how the, when you started out with this idea of the divorce, you had no idea we'd be focusing on this maid. And then her husband also a religious fundamentalist, but somebody who is even more insecure and short tempered puts another level of danger into the situation, somewhat the, the same way the fiancé did in About Ellie. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there's a moment of such power because the, the, the maid and her husband are, having, are trying to deal with the religious and ethical implications of everything that's been going on, and they're in conflict, and... You think he's about to hit her and and beat her, but he starts to beat himself. Yes, which is a a moment. A, it's a jaw dropping moment. It's 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 a moment where dr- where the the drama of the situation has opened up really a world of pain that we didn't know we'd be exploring. And, mm-hmm. and the film does a great job of even though you're introduced to this character late of setting up why he would feel like that, because from his perspective, everything has been stripped away from him. It's previously established that he can't find work and he lot previously lost his job as a cobbler and was in fact in debtor's prison mm-hmm. that like he has, he has been so downtrodden at this point and sees himself as less than regular society that the fact that this man who is financially well enough off to hire his wife without his knowledge, then from his perspective, shoves her and takes a child from them. Now he's completely lost it. Honestly, at that scene is so absolutely harrowing for me that I feel that if you could take 10 Italian neorealist movies and coalesce all their misery at a person's situation into one body form. That's him who that's in the form of this guy who finds there's nothing he can do. He just would love to just crumble into dust or, or, or the only thing he can do is focus in on himself because there really, he has no idea what he, what can happen to get out of a situation. And and the film beautifully contrasts him with, the husband character one of the central points of the film is what did he really know about her pregnancy and uh, uh, the film develops in a way that has his daughter asking him to tell her the truth did you know she was pregnant and he he will at first tell her no i did not 
And then you later find out that, in fact, he did know, mm -hmm. and that only after her repeated questioning does he eventually admit that to her. So you can trust this man who's lost everything in his own mind to someone who is willing to lie because he's afraid of losing things. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and that's, yes. that, that's really the distinction here is someone who's already lost everything, and that's rooted at least partially in class, against someone who is of a more well-to-do, at least middle class, who is willing to lie to retain what is his, be that his wealth, his family, um, whatever. He is willing to be untruthful to maintain that, whereas, Al, as you previously mentioned towards the end of the film, the lower class faithful woman actually is not willing to lie yeah. she's not even sure she just has doubts right she does she doesn't even want to entertain the possibility of being untruthful for financial compensation whereas our main character is more than willing to do that yeah that's a great point and what does that say and furthermore i i don't want to give short shrift on the fact that the central conflict between him and his wife which started off the separation is dealt with in, a, in an absolutely fair and nuanced way where both characters have um, incredibly valid imp uh, impressions and attitudes towards why they, uh, why they would, would or would not want a divorce but on top of it is that one of the reasons he, they doesn't want a divorce is because of that very sense that he is more willing to go the extra mile to keep what he has, maybe even more than the lower class people are to acquire things that will help them. He's more desperate in a way for, for keep, to keep what he has. Well, and, and one thing I like about this film, one of the many things I like about this film, it's, it's, kinda, it's commentary on Iran's patriarchy, because I think what it's saying here is that men are, are, are sort of hopelessly caught up in their own honor. Like they're, they really have this idea of like either trying to get provide for their family or hold on to what they provided for their family. And they're, they do so to the point where they don't value their spouses. Like neither husband will really listen to their spouse. They're capable of, uh, of love. They clearly care for their children. And the, our main character cares very much for his uh, elderly and infirm father. So they're capable of loving someone who affirmed when, when that love affirms their honor and their status. They're not really capable of loving their spouses as an equal. So it's really this situation where the society in Iran sets up men uh, who are capable of loving if it affirms their place in society. But when you're asked to view a woman equally and love her equally, they're seemingly incapable of that. Yeah, that's such a, a good point. And it's in this case, it's one of many themes going on. That theme, though, we should remember a little later in our discussion, is the theme of one of the future movies we're going to be talking about. Mm -hmm. But here it's one of it's one of many. It is um, just the difference between, as you pointed out, Peter, the difference between uh, faith and faith and expediency, and how, in fact, in and the my feeling, both you're shown the dangers of going too far on both directions. Um, and and all and also the way about how money gets intertwined with faith, and it gets in, and it gets intertwined with family, and the way and and uh, as I said earlier in the podcast about how 
the weight that one person gives another can have a different value from one from one person to another. Now the weight, now the thing gets transmuted across tales of money, family, class, and religion, and pride, and pride. Yes, and then as these different things are bouncing around the room, Ferrati is both turning on the temperature, but then he's also expanding the room. So you and you finally get to the legal system. You come to the realization that the legal system, it's not so much that the legal system is a method of oppression, but it's a just another symptom. The government is representative of these divisions and that, that drive the people who are, who are running the government. And so it's this very unique case of being critical of how the government operates, but not as an indictment to say, oh, they're at fault, because they're reflecting the society from where they come from. The empathy continues in our ability to see all sides of this. And the way the legal process works kind of puts the onus back on the participants. Mm -hmm. There's always a way out, so to speak, legally, but can these characters take it if it compromises their their pride, their what they view as their religious values, or their status? And it leads to near the end one of I think the more most powerful moments of the film because we mentioned how a lot of this is seen through the eyes of uh, the daughter of the divorcing couple mm-hmm. who has very unfairly been been put in the middle of all of this and as we said, and the maid also has this daughter this young girl and they had a burgeoning friendship that was building but as the legal process takes its toll and the particularly the 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 lower class family is dealing with humiliation and 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 hurt and the little girl is witnessing all of this we see a scene where she just stares at her former friend with hatred and i think mm-hmm. frahadi is is yeah. not meaning that to represent just these characters he is demonstrating in a wordless scene how everything from warfare to how we treat each other can be sent down through the generations and just builds into ever-increasing resentment in a vicious cycle that might never end. Very well said. Again, separation, right? right? Mm -hmm. And that is something that is demonstrated in such um, a profound way in this film. And one of the things I want to mention is just the visual demonstration of that. So I I talked about how the um, final shot of About Ellie was a bit wanting from my perspective. Here we have perhaps the apex of a closing scene, almost in my mind. So we're back... um, the central proceeding has, has found some sort of resolution and we're now back to considering the divorce we started with. And we've come to a situation where the daughter has been asked 
to decide which parent she will live with. Um, she states that she's made that decision, but asks that the parents leave the room so she can inform the judge of that decision. Uh, we see the parents walk out of the room and we see them sit on opposite sides of a hallway, uh, divided by, there's like a glass partition between them. And that's the end of the film. That's the, the, the credits run over that. It's a beautifully held shot as the credits run, demonstrating the separation of the parents in the scene. It's, it's a callback to earlier in the film where we've seen them separated in their own apartment. There's almost like a miniature courtyard where they look through window, like one room of the, the kitchen will look across a courtyard into the window of, I believe, a bedroom. And you see the husband and wife on opposite sides of that. So again, like the separation has been there throughout and the DP here is uh, Mahmoud Kalari, um, just beautifully handled M much, very obviously so in that closing scene and the time it allows you to wallow in their, in their, the distance between them. But it wouldn't have as much impact if that distance hadn't been visually established earlier. And what makes it all the more um, amazing, I guess, is just that it's done in this cramped quarters where you have like this confined area, but still the separation between the two demonstrated. So again, the marriage of quality writing and quality filmmaking. It's one of the greatest ending shots of all time. Uh, one of these things that could stand for <laughs> a bonus episode all by itself in terms of not just being brilliant, but brilliant in more levels than I think I can count. One thing I want to point out is that look at what happens in that ending. If this story of divorce and especially how it resolves with the idea of who gets custody of the child, if it was a conventional movie, a conventional director, they would clearly have a long drawn out trial sequence where there are big speeches on both sides and a lecture from the judge for why can't everybody be better or what have you. You guys know that kind of schlocky developments that it could be. A good director or a great director would have focused on the image right before it, which is the young girl facing us in the audience as the off-screen judge asks her, who do you choose? But what makes Oscar Ferrati one of the greatest directors working today is that he adds the scene you described. Because the point of the movie is not this question of like, who, who's she going to pick? Who's she going to pick? It doesn't matter who she picks. The separation has taken place. The separation between family members, the separation between the family generations. She's already lost. They've already lost. And just the placement, to take one element, the placement of these two who are facing each other in a way that they were not facing each other in the beginning of the movie, but they both have their heads down. And as you so aptly put it, it's a claustrophobic scene that still somehow manages to emphasize the distance between them. And as, a as, as just one final element I want to point out, in the partition, as the credits roll, you see person after person moving through. Person after person. And how much of their lives 
have been we've been filtered through these characters and their story and how much of it is a universal depiction of the human condition for lack of a better way of phrasing it all this happening in a credit sequence expressing distance the vastness of human experience and the separ- and the difficulties of the separations between people i just want to close my part of this discussion to say one uh, uh one particular miracle of the film is that because it did look at government and society there was a bit of a danger a concern when they had submitted the film to the iranian censor board as to whether the film would need to be cut or perhaps not even released but when the censor board saw the film their response was to nominate the film for best picture instead which it turns out to win and i'll tell you this guys it's one thing for critics and for fans of films such as ourselves to praise a separation but when you can get a censor to completely pull a one, a government censor guy to completely pull a 180 on a movie, that's how you really know. You've got something. And the separation went on to become the highest grossing film in Iran's history and really become a cultural landmark. Uh, I guess if you're in Iran... Everybody knows about this film. Uh, by the way, I think about uh, at, at the time about Ellie may have been the uh, second highest grossing. Mm. So one of the ways, and because this is an interesting question, because Farhadi is able to push the envelope on what is ex- acceptable in Iranian film. If, if a lot of other directors felt limited to stories about. Uh, children and and filmmaking and others ended up under house arrest or in exile. Farhadi seems to be able to navigate these waters in a bit of a, a different way, and and that may partially be due to the the huge financial success of his films, but also something that the Iranian government wants even more than control over its film industry, which is international prestige. So when a separation wins an Oscar, that is something the Iranian government can take as a source of pride. Now, more importantly, it's something the Iranian people can take as a source of pride. So there's always these two twin interests we're looking at is is the people and then the government so this unprecedented reaction may have freed up for hadi even more in his filmmaking and we'll see how his film takes a look in a whole different part of the world in his film the past released in 2013 
In this film, Ahmad travels from Iran to France to finalize his divorce with his soon-to-be ex-wife Marie, as she intends to remarry. Her fiancé, Samir, has problems of his own, as his wife lies in a coma after a suicide attempt. And Marie's teenager daughter, teenage daughter objects to the wedding for reasons of her own. Ahmad takes it upon himself to help the family he is leaving to, build, uh, to help build a future while secrets from the past are slowly revealed. The big difference here is that the past was filmed in France, so it is not subject to the Iranian government censorship that Farhadi would have previously had to deal with. And so some content is opened up. There's a little bit more frankness in discussions of... Uh, of an affair and and reasons for divorce, uh, but at the same time, the past does continue with a lot of Ferhadi's go-to themes. Yes, people expecting a avalanche of repressed expletives from uh, Ferrati's European debut well, can be very reassured to note that the qualities that have made his films exceptional continue here. But what's a really interesting significant difference in this film for me is that while a separation is very much concentrated on focusing things on the present moment and all that that implies, this lives up to its title and it's very much about an incident that has already happened and how the importance of looking back and what resolution you try to make with what you with what you see when you do reminisce? Agree. One of the central metaphorical images in this film is that of a stain, something that you can't get out. And this film is very much about being stuck in the in said past. And how do you move on? How do you forgive yourself? How do you forgive those around you? Um, in a way, it's a it's a mirror of the beautiful city because it very much deals with the themes of forgiveness versus revenge. Um, toward the end of the film, which we'll, we'll get there, but one character tells another, the only reason you had me here was to get revenge. And it's very much that tension of trying to move on from the past and how you treat those around you, how you live with yourself. On what terms do we as humans uh, interact with each other and what grace or do we show or what vengeance do we show? Mm -hmm. And I feel that this film adds another dimension to Ferrati's interests, the fourth dimension, because the the things that are explicitly done as di uh, to distance and separate people in his previous movies now come as a function of time, too. There's another key line where a character says, well, why are you here? Isn't it because there's a void in your life from your past and you're trying to fill it now with this thing? And the uh, person responds in kind, well, what's your void? Hmm. And, yeah, and what I had said earlier about how people have these things of value and it gets transferred to a different thing from one person to another. But here, it, the value is moved across time as opposed to distance or differences in political or monetary or, or otherwise ideology. Right. The idea of returning to your past is pretty much omnipresent 
in, in excuse me, in the film. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah. And it's from the very beginning because Ahmad, uh, wonderfully played uh, by Iranian actor Ali Mosafa, with real quiet authority, is, is coming back to his past in order to resolve it. He's trying to move on after his separation. So coming back to, to France and not only having to deal with uh, his soon-to-be ex-wife, but also her children. It's interesting, there are, there are three children involved, none of which are his, mm-hmm. but he is intimately becomes involved with all of their lives. And then that she is getting remarried, he is <laughs> understandably horrified that he's been asked to stay in, in, in the house where her new husband might be. I mean, this would be awkward for anybody, but again, and it, it, he's coming now from an Iranian culture perspective. Yeah, when you so. have, like Peter. Well, Peter, remember how Peter said you how you said about how one element is a person from the outside coming in. I think the past managed to absolutely invert that formula as you take the successful male patriarch of the family and literally cut him off in almost every way possible when he comes back. I even believe he's not just staying in this air, the house where he can be a cuckold, but they don't even have a cuckold area of the house for him. Instead, he has to stay with the kids' room. <laughs> Specifically the son of the soon-to-be husband, yes. not, not even one of his ex-wife's kids. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. What a way of undercutting and saying... <laughs> putting a guy way below his place. But what's interesting, though, is his reaction to all of this, because he doesn't act like a cuckold or somebody who is being humiliated in any way. He's really the one who's trying to be the calm at the center of the storm, because really the soon-to-be husband is dealing with far more problems and insecurities than he is, which is affecting his wife, these children. And so he's trying to figure out a way to somehow get everyone through this. And one, one of the things I really like about this film is, is what you just mentioned, Brad, is the way uh, what are effectively stepchildren are treated in this film. So we've seen in Fireworks Wednesday in a separation where kids are pushed back and forth between parents and in the separation asked to choose between them. Here we have a situation where uh, multiple parents are involved with children who aren't theirs, yet they treat all of them with respect and love and are in their lives as if really they were their own children. And it's almost like I, I wondered when I watched this if that was... Farhadi reacting to the treatment of children in his prior films mm. and, and doing some and trying to demonstrate a different side of that. Because the cent, one of the central conflicts is really Ali Mosafa's character dealing with the teenage daughter of his ex-wife. Now, this teenage daughter is the biological child of a, of a third man who is not a part of the film. We don't meet him. Mm-hmm. But he his relationship with her is really a, a deep one, and he clearly cares about her. Um, and it's interesting to see the respect those relationships are giving in this film, whereas before, children had been sort of pawns between the adults. And it's refreshing that these peop- these are not people out to 
destroy each other, which is the go-to for most movies about divorce. You certainly have conflict, but you don't have maliciousness. You don't have a situation where he's trying to undercut uh, his wife's new relationship. And in fact, even though there's tension, he tries very hard, and so does the uh, the French uh, soon-to-be husband, to to get along and, and try to set out how they'll proceed as a, as a extended family and do it like adults, which you never see in movies. So true, so true. There's a particular way that it, this film struck me. I don't know where necessarily that comes from, but it was how the French husband-to-be uh, is is leaving the subway and his kid stays behind because he wants to go ba- wants to go back and he takes the kid by the hand and then just admonishes him tells him look at me asks what's wrong and then talks through the kid and his issues in a way I have never seen an adult male in a movie treat his child with respect. <laughs> mm-hmm. So many American films, even ones with nuanced portrayals of, of fathers, are, are it's buffoon, it's buffoons, or at best clueless as to what their kids are up to. Well, the American like sitcom is based on like dads who don't exactly, like, uh, exactly. It's such a, yes. But you could even go to Best Picture winner Kramer versus Kramer, which is supposed to be the gold standard of divorce movies. And that movie doesn't go anywhere near the places both a separation and the past are going to. Mm-hmm. E- exactly. And so coming in from that kind of way that, that fathers are usually presented in American films, it was absol- something that I found absolutely bracing to see. But coming from a French film, literally the country from which they literally made them have a laissez-faire attitude so they can say the word laissez-faire. <laughs> <laughs> the country where the old joke is, is that you have a the reason that you have a second mistress is so you can complain about your first mistress. <laughs> to have so, uh, people in that culture who so care about their kids and that their kids learn the right lessons, that they grow up right, that they get love and support, that was really amazing to witness in this film for me. And I thought, well, that's another way that, like, Ferrati can show the situation in, in a different way. I like the approach of this film, especially coming on the heels of a separation, which had many big ideas on its mind. Here, like, the, the move to a foreign country may actually help because I think he scales back a bit to talk about this is really an interpersonal film for the most part. Mm -hmm. There's a development late that we'll talk about in a bit, but for the most part, it's the relationship between these three people and the children who are with them. And I think that that, that is a great move in, 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 especially in light of a separation, because I think to try to go bigger from a separation would have been a mistake because there's only so big you can go. And I, I think that here he really digs in and the actors, uh, Ali Mosafa, who we mentioned, Bernice uh, Barejo and Tahir Rahim are all great. Um, I was especially um, drawn to Bernejo, who, interestingly enough, was uh, cast only after Marianne Cotillard dropped out of the film. Oh, my God. That's astounding because, uh, because there's a really key line that's said in the movie where 
the daughter tells Ahmad, you know why she's marrying this guy, don't you? It's because he looks exactly like you. Ahmad really cares for this daughter, the stepdaughter of his. At least you definitely feel that way sure. at first. Mm-hmm. But first, but for a very particular reason, I was starting to get some doubts creeping in about his motives not being 100% pure in, the, in this sense. I thought, she looks really quite close to Bernice Bejo's Marie character. And so am I getting the sense that Ahmad is helping her in a way that, like, a father rails against his son playing baseball because, because in, a, in a sense that he can help her in a way he cannot help his, for his uh, ex-wife? Hmm. And so, again, it's, I wasn't 100% sure that that was in the movie until what you just said, Peter, because while the daughter looks considerably similar to Bernice Bejo, she's a dead ringer for Marie and Cotillard. Well, she's ex- in fact, I literally for a while I thought she actually was a young perform- hmm. uh, performance by her. Well, it's funny you should say that because she was cast for that reason. She apparently, um, I believe, the film Marion Cotillard won the Academy Award for was Libby and Rose. Yes. Am I right? Yes. So in that film, the actress who plays the daughter here actually played a younger version of the Cotillard character. Oh, is that right? In Libby and Rose, hmm. she, she was cast for that reason. Um, and then obviously I, I think she gives a strong performance and I'm glad she's still in the film, but her initial casting was at least in part due to her um, physical similarity to Marianne Cotillard. It's shocking to actually accidentally discover a psychological subtext. Mm, yeah. <laughs> wow. But uh, Bejo is excellent in, in her role. And a lot of people might know her uh, from the artist, but she she far surpasses that role here and the fraught relationship she has with with her daughter leads to some of the dramatic high points because the daughter is not in favor of this marriage and we we eventually find out why but there's kind of a battle of wills between the two over this that uh, that Ahmad ends up caught between yeah, and I think you're hinting at kind of the late developments that I struggle with a little bit here. And I'll, I'll try to summarize them. So we spend a good chunk of the film um, in, in uh, Marie's house. And Ahmad is, is there uh, and living with her new family, essentially. And that that really holds until the divorce takes place. And so you're sort of, at least I thought, that the divorce was going to be the main point of the film. But that's actually finalized maybe halfway through. Mm-hmm. And from that point, the story shifts to the uh, wife of her husband, her new uh, boyfriend played by Tahir Rahim. Her, his uh, wife, uh, they're not together, but she is, it's because she is in a coma following a suicide attempt. And from here, we start to investigate the circumstances of that suicide attempt. And we, our, our window into that is the daughter's feelings of, not of blaming her mother for the suicide attempt. The spouse found out about the affair and then consequently attempted to take her own life. Um, what is eventually re- revealed in another of Farhadi's kind of late developments is that the daughter 
uh, attempted forwarded emails uh, between the two illicit lovers to this woman's attention, and th- then she committed suicide shortly after. But what I struggle with here is that would have been big enough on its own. But there's another level yet because we find out one of the coworkers at the husband's uh, business actually intercepted the emails, <laughs> pretended to be. Uh, the woman's wife, and then forward them on to her himself or to her herself. So we began this entire discussion with kind of the idea of, well, what is melodrama? Mm-hmm. And my feeling was that melodrama is something that is mitigated by realism. And one of the perhaps unintended side effects of moving the filming to France and sort of losing the Iranian aesthetic is that there's a certain level of realism that's lost. And I think uh, a num- as these late period revelations build, that melodrama becomes more present here than I think in any of the films Farhadi has done in his home country. Now, having said that, I don't think it hurts the film. I don't think it's a bad thing. Because even though we're not dealing with pure naturalism in the way we have been, he's doing melodrama damn good. And I I will echo that. And this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk about Farhadi, because this is unabashed melodrama. But I, I want to talk about the reason for this late development. So... Where this, where he takes the story is that the woman who intercepted the emails and eventually passed them on did so out of spite in a way because she felt the European, th- this woman is an immigrant and mm-hmm. working illegally in France. And she felt that the spouse looked down on her and uh, in, in some ways thought that she, this immigrant woman, was having an affair with the husband. Now, we know that the husband was having an affair with the Bernice Bergeau character. So we know that not to be the case. But basically, that this, uh, the woman who's working illegally did, did so because she, she wanted the woman, the spouse, to know that it wasn't her who had acted dishonorably, that it wasn't me. In other words, so it, it's taking on this big idea of the immigrant experience in Europe and, and, and the condescending way in which the native French person will look down upon her and view her as someone without honor. And she then takes this step of like, it, it's an interesting combination of like clearing her name and malice, because I think she wants to hurt the person who looks at her in a condescending way, mm-hmm. but that she also wants to clear her name. So it is one of these things where I feel like it's introduced too late in the movie and it all happens very quickly. But at the same time, that said, it really is done pretty well, like in terms of how it impacts people in the story. So it, it's kind of this mixed feeling. I feel like it's big, but it's pulled off well enough that I can deal with it. And the actors sell it like gangbusters. Yes. It's it's a great use of setting that Ferrati now manages to transfer a bit to the workplace, whereas his previous films have been mostly based upon homes and vacation houses and so on. This one, it's critical upon the kind of work that people do that, um, uh, that also helps inform their characters, how Bernice 
works in a pharmacy, for example, and specifically how Samir owns a laundromat. A laundromat is uh, uh, great, has, uh, carries a lot of support for some symbolic weight, because not only because that there is the dispute which um, helped incite the incident is caused by a stain that cannot be removed, but when um, Samir tries to dismiss Naima, his uh, employee, he, he throws her, her clothes and her lunch out on the floor, thereby leaving a stain on the, uh, on the ground. It's also echoed in a very minor, low-key way um, mm-hmm. in the main relationship between the Berjao and Mosafa characters because she's repainting her house. In other words, she's starting anew. The new boyfriend, played by Tahir Rahim, is actually allergic to paint. So he can't go in the new, or can't deal with the new paint of the house. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the ex-husband, while in the house, leans up against a freshly painted wall and gets a stain on him. Right. So it's both like how they relate to this woman in each of their lives. One can't really move on from her and one can't commit to her. Yep. So it, it's this low-key metaphor that's not really remarked upon, but it's just sort of there in the background. To me, that's what Farhadi does well. Like He has these very nice writerly touches. Think about how wonderfully effective the guy does in giving symbolic and emotional import to some home decor. <laughs> the, like you said, it's not its not just the fact that it's the guy's stained from his continual presence in the house, but it, it's also the stain of trying to do a fresh start, something that both goes and is the attempt to paper over something and yet marks you at the same time. And like, we should remember how key the uh, furnishings were in Fireworks Wednesday mm-hmm. and see that Farhadi does not miss opportunities to take advantage of environment. He is in full command since, uh, on that level since Fireworks Wednesday. My favorite moment, one that caused me to just like laugh in joy when I saw it, was that when they have an, or while they're having an argument in the living room area, there, uh, right in the corner from where they're arguing, is a lamp which has upon which shade shows a couple of delightful um, pairs of couples dancing. I'm like getting, and I'm, I can't believe I'm witnessing a sarcastic commentary by a lampshade on these people's <laughs> relationship. Damn, Ferrati's good. <laughs> and kind of as a specter above all of this is the husband-to-be's wife in, in a coma. It is another example, first of all, of how important the title of the film is and how she represents the past as well as Ahmad represents the past. But the past always has this hold. And we see that in how the daughter is haunted by thinking that she's the one who caused the suicide attempt. And we see it in that no matter how much uh, the new husband wants to start a new life, he he can never let go of of the past. And being in a coma in a place between life and death is, is like this eternal hold. Let's dig in a little bit to the end of this film. We've talked a little bit in the last two films about how we have ending images 
which um, in about Ellie didn't work for me at all, but were gangbusters in the separation. So we're going to have a big uh, finale here as well. Mm-hmm. And it deals with the uh, the wife in a coma. So at, toward the end of the film, we, we have Tahir Rahim going to the hospital, and he's been asked to see if familiar sense would give provoke any reaction in his wife. And by that, he tries out some of her perfumes. Um, and then the last scene, which is filmed in a beautiful single take of uh, uh, the DP here is Mahmoud Kalari. Uh, he puts on what he refers to as her favorite cologne and leans into her. We see uh, in a uh, emotionless woman laying in the bed and leans into her and says, if you recognize me, squeeze my hand. So the, now two things happen. So we've had a beautiful single take um, of following him into the room and following him in a very understated performance. So now we have the, the uh, spouse in a coma. The bed is raised. We see a single tear roll down the cheek of the coma patient. And we see a, an image uh, of the two of her squeezing his hand against the white sheet. Now, like, so that is obviously big, right? That's an attempt for like a big finale of our artistic importance. And I feel like it, it, this it's such a great close for this movie because it mostly works. <laughs> if, if, he, <laughs> if he just hadn't had the single tear rolling down the face of the coma patient, I, I think I would have just like been crying myself. But there's that one, he just has that one little go up to 11 moment that I think is too much. Because he's usually so good at this open-ended ending thing. Yeah. And it, without the tear, it becomes very open-ended, is that you mm-hmm. don't see her squeeze his hand back. You don't know where this is going. And you still, I guess you still don't with the tear. But I agree with you, it, it, it probably wasn't necessary. Does it really, did it really bother me and affect my enjoyment of the film? Not really, but yeah, it probably would have been a little better without it. Yeah, it, I think it, and maybe we're, we're just getting what this podcast and shows difference between us as viewers, perhaps, mm-hmm. is where maybe I react more to that than, than you do. And it's just a visceral thing where it's like, just purely on an emotional level, I'm like, damn it. Don't do that. <laughs> and I and, and it's hard hmm. for me to get past that. Hmm. Well, see, I beg to differ with both you guys in, in for different particular reasons. One of which is that my viewing on it did not actually... I did not feel that, like, she was actively clenching her hand when the camera moves down to their hands clasped together on the bedspread. And I was looking... <laughs> no, she wasn't. <laughs> right. I look at it as almost like his hand and hers are intertwined in a way that I think it's meant to imply that if she's not, even if she's not squeezing, cause like you don't see like a movement, mm-hmm. but their hands are intertwined in a way to say that like he, th- th- their past has tied them. Like they're stuck there. Basically. That's how I took it. Even oh, I, I agree with I that, agree but I think that's there, yes. entirely coming from his love for her and that she doesn't respond in kind because she can't to me like the combination of the tear and the way that her hands are intertwined in that image is that he's saying that or they're not going to be able to move on from this relationship i okay. that's a that's a viewpoint that i absolutely agree i absolutely agree on but i take it in a way that doesn't imply that they're as fully active uh, people 
communicating that we don't know if the tier will amount to things. We're not given right. that information that the tier would amount to things. I didn't see that the hand being grasped where if she really was squeezing. And I think that's, first off, I think that's really interesting to give a moment. This is maybe the first time, maybe ever, that Ferrati shows something off to us in the audience that, that a character does not see. <laughs> that the, or does not explicitly reveal. It's something that we just see. But also, I maybe I'm putting a lot of weight on it here, but I think it's also important that both that he doesn't see that it's that the tear is there and it could not just be just be an, a physical reaction but i felt that there was some sort of emotional release but it's of a person who i don't know what that emotional release is it could it like the sentimental version is to think it's her love for the guy but it doesn't necessarily have to be maybe she really wants to die and that's what that tear meant to be i i really I'm led to thinking about what that would what that means for that reaction. And and I think that's part of the idea of the past where dramatic things have happened in people's pasts and how do we interpret what that what that is? Well, I, I, that, I how that can and how that causes problems in the present. Sorry. Well, I, I no no, I agree. I mean, as much as if you're just going to look at the titles of the film, I think this title is as meaningful as a separations is. Here the point of the movie is the past. Um, to quote my favorite movie, Magnolia, we may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. This, the last scene doesn't allow for any specific like um, foreshadowing, I don't think. You don't know where it's going to go. You do know that they're stuck together. And that's the point. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I agree with that. And even if she stays in a coma and never wakes up, the situation remains the same. He'll never be able to let go, whether mm-hmm. she can or not. Right. Right. And I think that's the key of him putting, rather than using her perfume, using his uh, cologne, mm-hmm. because it's really an effort by him to reach her, right? Right. Like, yes. You know. And it's also, but it also comments on how there is a level of importance that he has that he's going to be the thing that reaches her, not one of her own sense. It's weird calling that action selfish, but there is some kind of... I really like how there's a component of self-involvement. And I think the film is really interesting and fascinating in how it uses... How every... How, in a melodramatic way, to your point... But it's also how everybody puts in their own reasons as to what really caused this horrible incident. And it's because they feel they need to put their own selves on it oh it was i that was responsible it was i that was responsible and that's why i think it's a weird inversion of the ending of a separation where again in a conventional movie they would go well which one does a girl choose but the point is the point is it's separated here i think it's a weird optimistic spin because it's who in, in for half of it anyway because um well who did it who did it who did it and then there's a moment where ahmad is telling uh, marie Here's the real reason why I left you four years ago. And Marie makes a change and says, I don't want to hear it. It's the past. Right. I need to let go and I need to move on no matter what your reasons are. And that, you know, it's a very bizarre wing to say maybe, but that's a positive development, I think. Well, and it's followed by a beautiful image, I think, of 
uh, Ahmed leaving the house. Yeah. And you see the teenage daughter watching him leave from the window as he's in in frame but obscured by these like falling leaves. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really poetic image right and it and think of the interesting contrast that he's fractured by all the objects in the foreground as he's obscured and obscured by the window pane but then the other samir is dealt with a single unbroken shot and it's not follows him and then the camera follows him into the room to see um his his comatose wife that's really interesting to make these things dramatically presented differently to literally show both sides of what it means to look and and try to rectify with the past. So as we mentioned earlier, Farhadi's past was in the theater, and that comes into play in a big way in The Salesman, released in 2016. But the fire came to rest in your white velvet breast So somehow I just know that it's safe. Imad and Rana are married actors playing the leads in a local production of Death of a Salesman. Rana is assaulted, leaving her traumatized and, in the eyes of her husband, shamed. As Rana struggles with the trauma, Imad seeks out her attacker, and soon we'll have to choose between revenge and healing. Okay, rarely do I experience the experience that I had when I saw Sea Salesman. A particular kind of deja vu in a way where a separation makes such a gigantic impact that I was just wondering, how the hell is he ever going to top or even come close to what he did in a separation? And then I get the chance to see the salesman, and damn, if he doesn't get really, really close, salesman not only nearly reaches the level of a separation in terms of the, the, the themes and how vastly it expresses them, it also adds even more colors and dimensions to Ferrati's considerable arsenal of filmmaking talent for one thing this movie is the first that i saw of him since to actually do expressionism like the german expressionism that i mentioned uh, earlier whereas his previous films had used these details for great effect but in a very realistic setting this time when our main character is setting up the play for Death of a Salesman, the theater environment is presented in this abstract way. There's these colored squares that seem suspended in space. There's a there's a big white light that seems to surround them. And as they're and as they're running around, it seems like it is less composed, less full of detail, to echo the fact that it is a person's story and it's a smoothed over version of the messy examples of real life. And another example on here is whereas Ferrati has put great tension from the dramatic and the melodramatic, I'll be damned if this is his foray in many ways into Hitchcock-level suspense. 
Well, I feel like he entered that territory a bit in About Ellie. We, we didn't all agree on the results of that, but uh, it, there certainly is that element going on. And while I don't think it approaches a separation in its greatness, I think it is great in its own right. A uh, few fascinating things right off the bat are just how much you could tell Farhadi's familiarization with the theater and how he presents both what's on stage and behind the scenes. And it's, it's fascinating to see how they utilize theatrical devices to get around uh, the restrictions on wearing a hijab because you see one of the minor characters playing a prostitute and uh, she is uh, dressed kind of in Western clothing with without with a, apparently Western hair. And it's revealed when she gets off stage that her hijab is under the wig. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked throughout the podcast about kind of Farhadi's pet themes and the way he approaches various projects. And I think what's interesting here is he seems to recognize that and add in the next the, another variable of the theatrical production. I, I think any artist who returns to um, a similar well is going to have to find ways as they move forward in their careers to keep things fresh, to introduce things. And I think the device here of using the play Death of a Salesman is a smart one because it automatically gives you another layer to deal with. And, and it's one that in a way is more accessible to Western audiences because I'm not a regular theater goer, but I, I, I'm familiar with the play. And I, I think really what this film is really commenting on is it's an excavation of uh, the male ego in Iranian society. Mm -hmm. And I think to ha it's really smart to have a Western window, if you will, into that psyche. The death mm -hmm. of a salesman connection is very much at an angle. I, I was kind of surprised by this. I thought there'd be a little bit more of an analogy made between uh, a, a, maybe the main character here and Willie Loman, but that doesn't happen. In fact, uh, I think, Peter, your idea of this ego thing is, is really the key. And Berhadi has said that the connection he used between the two works was the idea of humiliation. The idea that Willie Loman suffered humiliation, which led to his downfall. And humiliation is, is the core of what Imad is struggling with in this film. So the connection is there, but... Plot-wise, story-wise, it, it, it's far less vivid than I would have imagined they would have gone. Yeah, once again, Ferrati gives us things that our familiarity with films lead us to expect things are going to go in a, in a different path. Like, I'm with you. I was totally expecting there would be a lot more one-to-one -one similarity upon this or that development of Death of a Salesman and as the events of the play comment on the events of the movie and vice versa and that's not what happens in a sale, in Salesman. Looking at this film through the lens of 2018 and 2019 with the Me Too movement we've had and given that the central event in this film is a sexual assault of sorts and what's really stunning is how 
the husband is completely only able to see that through how, the light of how it impacts him. Right. right. He has, uh, there's such a lack of empathy for what his wife has gone through and, and what she must be feeling. He's really only concerned with how this impacts his place in society and uh, having other people talk about it. And, and I think that's intentional. Like, I, I think it's showing that this, th- there's no mechanism in society to show concern for a wo- the woman's feelings and her recovery and what she needs to, uh, to move on from that. And she knows that and doesn't share with her husband the details of the assault or the extent of the assault. And for one, that's because she's traumatized. But for another reason, she understands that in modern Iranian culture, as depicted in this film, she would be victimized again by the investigation process. She absolutely doesn't want the police involved. She wants to get past it. Peter, you're, you've so hit the nail on the head in that very soon, even while showing on the outside that it's all the concern about her, he's constantly not respecting her wishes, her judgments on the matter, but thinking about his own reputation, his own humiliation as he's approached by people in the apartment. One of their neighbors said, if you'd have seen what had happened, you'd know the truth. And having to deal with acting on stage, which kind of gives a whole nother level to the, right. the, uh, the, the idea of performance is that they're playing other characters and he's at the same time playing like this never happened. <laughs> well, think about what that means in the context of another spectacular final image that Ferrati gives us at the end of Salesman. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm, not gonna spo- I'm not going to spoil it here, but the idea of performance and the way you have to present yourself to the world right. in a way to hide the real feelings and concerns you have is brilliantly depicted in what we see at the end of this. Well, well let's, let's lead up to that, because I, I think the final image here is, so we've been talking about that in relation to the last couple films, right? And I think it's vitally important here. So when we get there, maybe we can dig into it, because the last, oh, I don't know, roughly, basically the final act of the film yes. is really what leads up to that point and is really one of, I think, Farhadi's best set pieces. It's, it's returning to his go-to of um, single setting and apartment building mm-hmm. and all the emotional relationships kind of yeah. within that space. You get, once again, the guy can like make symbolic wonders out of, uh, out of construction. And, uh, the, and, the, and it's opposite, of course, as it notably starts in with what people think is an earthquake. And then you look out to the side and you see like there's some moving equipment, but it's at night and the equipment is not moving. So the idea is is that the shuttering is not coming from something actively gnawing at them, but it's something that has weakened weakened the foundation. On a filmmaking level, this is depicted with unbroken shots of the building shaking and, and the tenants evacuating. And, and we haven't really discussed too much of Farhadi as a visual storyteller because his 
thematics are so powerful, but when he wants to hit something home, he'll run some visuals with the best of them. Yes, exactly right. Like Because he makes it seem so natural and inevitable and fits so well. But here I see him branching out, moving forward and in this unbroken shot, and especially in that last 15-minute set piece that you described, Peter, I see him taking flight and putting that stuff in a whole new level. But before we get there, I want to just talk on the whole idea of a foundation. If Sibide from About Ellie is restricted in the sense of what she can't do, the main character in Salesman is restricted by what every other part of society is building a foundation around him that makes it his own prison. In other words, they're, they're goading him into how he has to act. He has to behave a certain way. He has to react this way. And this is from the fellow people in the building and his own students in a notable take upon what does it mean to present a version of Iran and behavior. He is actually showing the cow to his, uh, to his students. Who, who are all male, by right. the way. Yes, exactly. But then if you look at what happens in the cow and create an analogy with this character, there's actually a lot more of a one-to-one with the cow than with the uh, yes. death of a salesman. Well, and he, uh, he has because, a really funny line. Right, because, it. It, uh, what's that? Uh, yeah, sorry, there's a very funny line in the movie where he, uh, one of his students asks him, well, how do you turn into a cow? Mm-hmm. And he responds, gradually. Gradually, <laughs> which is what exactly. happens in the film. Exactly. Yeah. He loses his humanity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but gains his maleness. It's really remarkable that what you what you think on this per, in the sense of it's going to make a comment on performance instead becomes... A revenge tale, and, 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 and a very obsessive one. So he, he, he does some detective work, and yeah. he eventually um, tracks... He, the, the assailant has left their van behind. Yeah. And essentially, he, he uses... Uh, and the, once, the event, once they eventually come back for the van, he tracks it down back to a bakery. He then fall, he, figured, he goes into the bakery and attempts to uh, suss out which of the employees is typically the delivery person and then presumes that person to be the assailant. So from that point, uh, we think we have a handle on things. Uh, he creates this ruse of where he says he needs the van to move something and, and asks the delivery driver to assist him with that. From there, we have another late game Farhadi rug pull where the van shows up, but it's a different driver from the young man and suspected assailant we thought was going to come. And that is the lead-in to the set piece we've been um, hinting at, where we now have the um, revenge-obsessed husband in the same room with the person who may or may not be the assailant. Who is a much older man with a heart condition. Trademark, vulnerable, Farhadi character. Right. This really does bring together, I think, all of uh, Farhadi's strengths, in my opinion, because we have this claustrophobic area, again, with uh, filmed beautifully here with uh, DP Hossein Jafarian. And we're, the setting is the apartment that was, uh, whose foundation was damaged in the first scene of the film. Yep. So now we're back to the, to the source of the tension, if you will. And what follows from here is... Um, an extended sequence where the husband first figure first comes to the realization that it was in fact the old man 
who assaulted his wife. But it's not so straightforward because what he, what the old man thought he was doing was effectively visiting a prostitute who used to live in that same apartment. And as the old man, he does a tremendous job because he plays this combination of vulnerability and shiftiness so well that you feel for him, but you don't trust him at the same time. Yes, and, you are on the razor's edge of 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 feeling really bad for him and yet realizing that you might be making a terrible mistake by doing so. Yep. And so the sequence continues where you're not sure how far is Imad going to push this man? How far is he going to push himself? How deep into the darkness of his psyche are we going to go? And for me, this is an example of Farhadi again going big, but for good reason, because the bigger he goes, the deeper down we go. We dig into this this male ego gone and gone wrong. We have um, a sick man who's being pushed to the limits of his life by a, uh, by a man who's been wounded in pride only, basically. And Farhadi does a great thing of contrasting this by having um, Imad's wife come and eventually say, I, this isn't what I want. This isn't what, what we all want. And we should note here, she's played again by Tarana Aladusti, who once again is fucking amazing. And, and seeing all these different roles she played, could this character be any more different than yeah. uh, than her Fireworks Wednesday character or Ellie or anybody? Yep. Every time she comes to us, she, she comes in a completely different guise. And you're right, this is the moment of truth for Ahmad because he's telling himself that he's doing it all for her. That's what the, that's what he wants to believe. But when she not only tells him she doesn't want it, but says our relationship is over if you do it, he he's like a man possessed because now in addition to what he's threatening to do to uh, to the old man. He's basically putting his own marriage on the chopping block right. with this as well. What the husband ultimately transitions to is, is he, he's not going to hurt him physically anymore, but he's going to humiliate him in front of his family. He's going to call that old man's family there and say, look, you're, this old guy was trying to get to a prostitute and he's going to humiliate him in the face of his daughter who's about to be married. And he really, he really needs to transfer his humiliation onto the old man. And as badly as that would go in any Western society, you can triple and quadruple it, uh, for what would happen, uh, in a middle-class Iranian family. Yes. Right. So you are put through a, such a brilliantly modulated emotional ringer in those scenes because for every moment where you don't know if he if the old man actually did it or not and how much you have sympathy towards him being um, brutally treated versus feeling he may de- he may deserve that for for what he was for what he was doing and and more specifically not being honest about it but then it turns and now you're put through a different part of the ringer as how far will um Imad go to express the idea of humiliating this guy will he get the po- will he call the police will he go and have them, uh, him confess to uh, trying to visit a prostitute and it all just culminates in just like what is one of the most shockingly multifaceted moments i've ever seen in a film he's about to let him go he, he's leaving 
and he just stops, goes back, and like, there's one thing, and that's he does a gigantic slap across the face. That is so startlingly brilliant. Because on the one hand, it is exactly, exactly what the impulse is of some guy you would have towards some guy who was like who went and touched your wife and then just wants to continually deny it. It feels absolutely right and proper in the most intrinsic level to do, and yet that's what damns him and shows that like he how he falls short as a person because with the slap the the character with, has such a weak heart yes. that he he may in fact have killed him right right and we don't while he don't we don't see that if he has a demise he he breaks him he basically breaks him mm-hmm. as a as a as a person from there we get to the film's last shot which is you hinted at earlier Alan I'd like to talk about cuz it is I, I don't think it's really a spoiler but what happens is, is so we leave the scene and we go to another performance of Death of a Salesman, which both Imad and his wife are in. And the last shot of the movie is them being fitted uh, with the makeup of their characters. And it's done in this like doom-laden way where it's almost that they are essentially now Willie Loman and his wife, and they're going to live that way for the remainder of their days. And mm-hmm. she said it would be over between us, and it, and it is. You could tell by the way they look at each other that the the love in their relationship is gone. They don't speak, and I believe in a lot of that sequence they're facing away from mm-hmm. each other. And it's a perfect, perfect visual representation of the facade. And it gets at it both ways. Both the facade that they have to set up, that the idea that they have a happy and satisfying relationship, but also the facade... And the expectations that Ahmad has had to live through his life and live through the events of the movie. The facade about what a guy needs to do and the honor that he feels he needs to enforce and the fact that the honor needs to be at this old man's expense. So that idea of you need to put that front on for to fit in the world and how that falls short of what the real people underneath all that makeup and all that... Like the, as you put it so aptly, Peter, the chains to hold him down, once again, dealt with magnificently in that last shot. We talked about the beautiful city and how it had its statement on revenge. Now he returns to that statement, but this time with the tools of a master filmmaker Mm -hmm. and makes a much more definitive statement on it. Agreed. And from there, Ferrati goes international once again, this time to Spain in his film Everybody Knows, released in 2018. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor 
the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Laura, played by Penelope Cruz, returns with her children for a wedding in her hometown near Madrid, reuniting with many faces from her past, including an ex-flame, Paco, played by Javier Bardem. The celebration turns to tragedy when Laura's daughter is kidnapped and a ransom is demanded. Now, how this tight-knit community responds is going to unearth long-buried secrets. Apparently, this was a film long in the making that he had intended to do right after the past, but then he realized he wanted to do another project in Iran before he went to another international one. But finally, he does get to this. And for me, it's very a very mixed set of results. It's similar to my reaction to a film we discussed a couple months ago, Steve McQueen's Widows. Because okay. I, I think we, we agreed that the that was a uh, sort of a heist film, and we agreed that we didn't like the mechanics of the heist, but there was still some really interesting character dynamics going on in the background. And I think the same thing is happening here. The kidnapping and the whodunit mystery that's going on here is pretty basic stuff. It feels like an attempt at an Agatha Christie kind of thing, and it's not really for Hottie's thing. On the other hand... These characters are fascinating, particularly Javier Bardem's uh, Paco and what I think is Bardem's best performance I've ever seen him give. This was very surprising for me. He, he had the same kind of gravitas that the lead of the past had and a strength of character that's going to be tested. And there's a lot of secrets revealed there's a lot of family dynamics and a lot of the interests that farhadi has been exploring he explores them again here and i think to the extent he's doing that he's making a, a fascinating film but instead he's stuck with this mystery that just doesn't function at the level of the rest of the film this just really feels like He's touching back on all his prior themes, and he's sort of doing things he's done before, but just not quite as well. They're just sort of revisited here in a kind of flat way. And unfortunately, that lack of dynamism bring, is, is also borne out in the visuals. This is perhaps his most dull film visually. It's mostly shot, reverse shot, conversation, um, with a few notable exceptions. But yeah, a lot of this film... It just falls flat for me. It just, there's just not a lot going on. What resonates for me is the ways in which the film asks how family bonds require sacrifice. Mm. And to discuss that, we will need to start discussing spoilers. And at its best, and I agree, I agree with you, there are, mo there are parts of the film that are not at its best. But when it is at its best... It reminds me of, of a, a great Akira Kurosawa film called High and Low, in which uh, a man's a rich man's uh, child is kidnapped, and later finds out, oh, it's it's his chauffeur's child. 
How does that change things? In this case, Javier Bardem finds out that Penelope Cruz, who he once uh, was his old flame, uh, he finds out that he is the father of the kidnapped daughter. And that puts in his mind, well, what now is my responsibility? Is my responsibility changed because I'm the biological father, even though I didn't raise him? And that also brings about suspicions. Am I being taken advantage of? How come nobody told me this before? And now that I'm basically being required to give away my farm in order to get the ransom, what are my responsibilities here? And these, to me, are really interesting questions. And Farhadi approaches them very thoughtfully. I wish there weren't so many other distractions taking away from what I think is a very successful strain in the movie. But as far as what resonates for me about the movie, it's those themes. Well, I think part of the thing, part of the reason that it's a, a little different from his other films is, whereas the other films have allowed him, when he shows an expansive ensemble, he delivers on it gradually. He lets things settle. Like you look at the begin, the first half of About Ellie, where you get a, an enormous amount of time to know these people and their world, and this is a case where relatively little comes in in terms of what we think of more conventional exposition. It's like, oh, this person's related to this, and this person's been this town X years. And it's it's not at the level of people going, as you know, I am the mayor of Madrid, or anything <laughs> like that. But it is much more of that to an extent than Ferrati's done previously. And then the kidnapping situation shows up way earlier than the driving force of About Ellie. So when you finally see who the characters are who perpetuate the kidnapping... If your first reaction is, who the hell are these people? Which was mine. Who is this? The, right. That's not the way to go. Although I have to give a, uh, admit, when they start arguing with themselves and they show that the kidnappers themselves have their own competing motivations, I'm like, oh, Ashgar, man, you just can't, <laughs> God bless you. You can't help but just try to make even those guys complex, even at this late juncture of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's just that to have an effective mystery, you have to have enough characters that you know deeply enough that you suspect them. Right. And there's nothing really given to you along the way to allow you to suspect the ultimate culprit. And that's a problem. Now, the adjective I keep coming back to this film is, is flat because he does introduce like some visual techniques, which might be interesting. Like there's a lot of drone filming in this. And for a while, it seems like they're going to go down this path where they have drone overhead drone footage of the wedding. You think you're going to catch some clue in the footage they have that you, you now have discerned the kidnapper. But that's like introduced and abandoned with zero payoff other than to maybe suspect immigrants are behind them. There is one visual flourish that I do think is impressive, which are some scenes that take place in a steeple uh, clock tower. Yes. Where uh, the clock face has a rip in it, and the sunlight very evocatively shines through it. The moments that take place in that setting, uh, I, I think, do kind of remind us, yes, we, we are dealing with a, a visual film. Well, it's both manages to be uh, matters of a confessional nature and... 
one of a very cool example of a self-referential symbol as you see the gears of the clockwork, the, the intricate things interlocking and then moving in place to go, oh, well, that's, that's what's going on <laughs> with this plot. Yeah, and I should say to you, one other visual, uh, one other scene I like, there's a scene where Javier Bardem is uh, uh, arguing with his wife, B, and the camera flows around them. It's like yes. one or two long takes. And that worked a lot better. And I don't know why, like, there's that one argument that's staged that way and mm -hmm. all the others are just shot, reverse shot. But mm -hmm. um, that that worked well. But unfortunately, it was it was the exception, not the rule, and of, of limited... Uh, Limited relief in uh, mm. everybody knows. See, now I found a, lo a lot more uh, value out of the shots of Bardem's house because I thought it's amazingly uh, like, did Gordon Willis help uh, uh, throw in some advice on here? Because what I think Ferrati shows that the vineyards are so lush and over and lush and overgrown and with a giant splash of color, but the, in, in, the inside cannot be more dark. And so I'm getting some big time end of the shining kind of vibes as as especially when Bardem realizes the thought of the prospect of losing the vineyard and the vineyard's right there, but it's in it's framed in an open it's an open doorway and it feels so bright but so distant at the same time while Bardem's face is in the foreground. So I think he got a lot of great impressions out of that particular. Uh, place as well as does the inside of the church tower and, and i feel like we'd be remiss of at least not talking a little bit about penelope cruz in this film she is ultimately one of the leads after all for me cruz um she's not bad by any stretch mm -hmm. i don't think she's given a lot to do other than be upset she has a much more traditional role in this and look her daughter's been kidnapped she's going to react appropriately to that and i do think there's a there's a wonderful quirk about penelope cruz which is that she seems not to be able to act in english but when she is in spanish movies she can be quite extraordinary now this may not be her best performance as i as i think it is uh bardem's but at the same time if in in creating an emotional connection and and it's not quite just as simple as being upset about the kidnapping and worrying about her daughter she's got a lot of three-dimensional chess she needs to play and dealing with the fact that she's got this secret and how he's going to react and what she ex what she expects of him what she allows herself to expect of him because in the end nothing is more important to her than getting her daughter back and if that means being perceived as taking advantage of somebody else if it's to the uh end of getting her daughter back she's going to do it so i actually think uh, cruz is quite good in this yes that's a take where i was really intrigued by that that aspect you cannot call it her attitude mercenary when she's looking for the safety of her own daughter. That's the absolute most natural thing that you should go for. But that being said, I've never seen a movie quite like this where she uses this to play upon Javier Bardem's character. And she is in very aware of how much it's going to cost. And that Bardem's life might very well be ruined 
as a result of her actions, but if it's going to give a chance, an increased chance, however small that the daughter comes back safe, she's going to perform that action at Bardem's expense. And also, it's very interesting how after everything's resolved with the daughter's situation, she absolutely does not give any acknowledgement towards what she's done. And her main response is, I'm, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. I wonder, given the point we, where we've talked about Farhadi's go-to themes and, and plot structures and mechanisms, I'm a little worried after this film that he, that he might get into a pattern where he's kind of stuck. Given that this film repeated a lot of his ideas to diminished returns, are you guys worried about diminished returns with Farhadi, or do you feel like this is maybe a blip on the radar? I'll tell you right now, my that I was very concerned when he was doing the past because okay. I because that was his first film away from the structures that had so governed so many of the plot developments of his other films. So I was very very worried about the I what what he would do if if those restrictions are moved away. My particular nightmare was that he became a uh, French libertine who was just uh, <laughs> wanting to live the life of La Placier over and over again, and, and all these concerns about family and society would have just dis- disappeared in a hideous bacchanal of French ennui. But Ben, the past is great, and he comes back with salesmen. With everybody knows, it's a, it is a step down. I think it's a much smaller step down than how you okay. seem to feel about it. But I do feel it's a step down. And I also feel it's one data point in, in, his, in a career trajectory that has, to my mind, three masterpieces, maybe four, and one of the greatest movies of all time. So it's such a titanic height, and the, the downshift is so is such a small moment that I'm willing to give a great amount of confidence towards that. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I think I might even view it as a little bit less of a step down than you do, Al. So uh, so I'm, I'm less worried because I think what he does well, he continues to do very well in this film. Mm -hmm. And what he does badly is a result of him trying something that's out of his comfort zone. I have to have faith that having been through this process, he's probably not likely to subject us to another Agatha Christie whodunit. <laughs> and the fact that he keeps wanting to go back to Iran, I think, is is a good sign because as much as I, I, I like the past and appreciate parts of everybody knows, there there's certainly no doubt that his aesthetic uh, so far in his Iranian films are far stronger. And so I'm very optimistic that uh, considering the kind of goals he's shown and the ambition in ideas and themes, I think there's every reason to be think we'll be getting more great films from him. Well, and, and to be clear, too, like I'm going to see like whatever he does. I don't mean to imply that I'm jumping ship here or anything. The thing that worries me the most is the idea of diminished returns. And what encouraged me about the salesman is that he found a, a new a way to put a new spin on his themes. Mm-hmm. Whereas like everybody knows was the movie I was worried about him making sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'll be interested to see if he can find that new twist once again. 
to your point, Brad, about his desire to go back to Iran, I think the fact that he wants to go back right. is one of the things I would find really reassuring. That he would continue to find a sense of what is interesting, what's notable, and what's a way of giving this a ver- a level of attention, detail, and a sense of humanity to the proceedings that will in- in- inform his work, no matter what direction it may go next. This concludes, though, our look at what Ashkaf Rodi has done so far. Peter, it was such a blast to have you over to go and explore this filmmaker. Well, and thanks so much for having me. I, I think uh, you've allowed me to come into the uncertain situation. I'm the Farhadi uh, interloper here, so <laughs> thank you very much. Well, absolutely, anytime. Thanks, yes. guys. And um, and thank you guys for listening into our uh, discussions into the places that Farhadi has illuminated. If you guys have your own impressions that you would like to share upon Ashkar Farhadi or what we had to say about him, you can give the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found in multiple places across the internet, from Spotify and iTunes and Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, on Twitter at DC Podcast, and our episodes can be found online on our website of directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and hope to catch you next time on another episode of The Directors Club. Can I throw in one thing here? Okay, okay sure, it's, sure. It's just, just a lighter note. As we mentioned, Farhadi's first two films, uh, The Beautiful City and Dancing in the Dust, are not available in the United States. Uh, I found out in preparation for watching this with you guys that my brother had actually seen this film a number of years ago while he was serving in Iraq. And uh, I asked him, well, what why did you watch this? How did that come up? And this must have been some sort of cultural exchange where the Iraqi soldiers he was working with wanted to introduce them to their culture. And he said, no, it was nothing like that. He just, we were tired of watching Transformers. We put put this on and he's like, so really the reason is Michael Bay sucks that we watch this. Uh, um, Thanks, Michael Bay. I'm going to say congratulations, Michael Bay. Your films are so fucking awful that they bridge the gap between the U.S. and the Middle East. (laughs) So I took from that story that we should send Michael Bay over to Iraq. I don't know. Is that, is that, <laughs>